Welcome to Veteran State of Mind. I'm your host, Garrett Jones. Happy to be here. Happy to be with you. Thanks for coming along, guys. Thanks for bringing your mates. If you're new, I want to extend to you my warmest regards. Thanks for coming down here. We got a good show lined up today. It's it's a show, I'm not going to lie to you. Um, when I read the book in preparation for this episode, you know, I do prepare sometimes, um, it was pretty emotional. It was, it was, it was, it was real emotional. Like the, um, I think it's, um, it doesn't matter where you serve. It doesn't matter what nationality you are, what cap badge you wore. You know, there's some things that are just so universal about the experience of war and combat and comradeship. And, um, yeah, the, the author of this book, um, he did a great job of capturing that. And, um, and I'm really proud to have been able to uh, to speak with him uh, and have him on the show. And we'll get to him in a minute and give him his uh, his his just attention. Now, in the meantime, I would like to speak to you, please, if you could lend me your ears about the people that make this podcast possible. Because without them, there is no podcast. Well, without you, there is no podcast. And without me and the guest, there is no podcast. But the um, our sponsors do an incredible job, not only in um, helping us put this out there to you but they also do an incredible job in their respective fields no more so than Altberg boots specialist boot makers for over 40 years i wore them on three tours i uh i can't you know it's just some, something about these Altbergs, right i've been looking back through a lot of pictures recently and i see them on my feet when i'm in iraq and i can remember the day that they, because I actually got them delivered to me in Iraq, and I can remember it was a special day because I'd seen people cutting around the desert, um, and I made inquiries and I found out that they were wearing Altbergs, so I got myself a pair of the Desert Microlites, and they were fantastic. They lasted me for three tours. That's how good they were, and uh, you know, I was carrying a lot of stuff on my back, putting in the miles, and they lasted. They did a great job. Um, and my, like I've said before, my ankles are one of the only parts of my body which is not fucked. And I credit Altbergs with that. Um, I also had the Warriors, which are like a more heavy-duty pair. I had those as a PTI when I used to do a lot more, a lot of tabbing. They never let me down. Still wear them. Great boots. Really recommend them. Check them out. Altberg.co.uk. That's Altberg.co.uk. We're also brought to you by our friends across the pond, Combat Comover. They are, to hair, what Altberg is to boots, right? Or your feet, I should say. What they do is they make a fantastic pomade, combat comb over pomade. You get a bit of it on your hands, you stick it in your hair, and then you look fucking awesome. You look fantastic. The opposite sex or whatever sex you're into, you could be into all the sexes. I encourage that. Get amongst it while you're young, you youngsters out there. Make a TikTok about it and share it with dirty Uncle Gez. Um, get out there, guys. Get some combat comb over, slap it in your hair. You don't want helmet hair. No one wants helmet hair. You don't want to be coming off the obstacle course trying to trap and have horrible looking hair, do you? So get some combat comb over. Check them out at combat comb over at uh, combatcombover.com. And we are also brought to you by our friends at Right Flank. Um, I've been very, like, well, this is an Iraq heavy podcast today. So there's no one better to sponsor it than Right Flank, to be honest, because they were there in the shit with the grunts on Telic 9. Treading the streets of Basra, putting bullets into bad guys. That's what they were doing. And they were doing it 
with a smile on their face. I'm assuming that last part. Uh, totally assuming. They might have been doing it with tears in their eyes. But I tell you what, when they came back, they took what they had learned and they put it into making fantastic active outdoor wear. Um, I, I uh, wear their shirt on the days that I walk down to the podcasting studio. I like it. Wicks away moisture. It doesn't give me... I don't get... Because I you know, can't say that I'm tabbing with much weight, but I do have a, a backpack on. And thanks to right flank, I don't have all nasty rash on my back or anything. It's a very nice, very nice t-shirt. Keeps me feeling nice and sprightly on my walks. You can find them at right flank, which is spelled R-I-T-E, right flank, or at rightflank.com, spelled R-I-T-E. Check them out. Get your hands on some lovely outdoor active leisure wear and look sexy as a sheep, as we'd say in Wales. All right, let me read you a little bit about today's guest. Jeff Morris is a former infantry officer in the United States Army, serving two deployments to Baghdad, Iraq. Iraq, fucking hell, check me out, I've gone full American. As a platoon leader and company commander, he has been featured in numerous magazine articles, television profiles, and speaks to a wide array of audiences. He lives in Texas with his wife and four children. Um, Jeff, he was a really, really inspiring guy the first time we had him on. Well, I say the first time we had him on. This is technically the first time, but we had to record two episodes together, which I'm going to put out now together as one, um, because we just had... Uh, so much to talk about. So uh, Jeff kindly agreed to come back and give us another hour of his time. Um, I appreciate it very much. I'm sure you guys will do too when you hear what he has to say. So without further ado, here he is, Mr. Jeff Morris. Jeff, thank you so much okay. for coming on the podcast, mate. No, brother, it's a pleasure, man. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Um, I learned something from your book straight away from the off because it was uh, you were in the cavalry. And um, over here, yeah, over here, our cavalry is... Um, we kind of like, they're, they're the guys with uh, with the tanks, but you guys are armored infantry, yeah? Yeah, so it's a mix of both. So first Cav, who I was a part of, it is, you know, historically, yes, it was an armored unit. But then if you go back through time, you know, in Vietnam, they were the ones, the original, the, the helicopters taking everybody in and, you know, kind of instead of horses, you had, you had birds. Yep. So, yeah. And so the way it's set up now, it's just a, it's a hybrid of armor, infantry, engineer, and my first deployment, it was much more siloed. You were a part of an infantry brigade or infantry battalion. And then by the time I got to my second deployment, it was all a hybrid of each. So we had mm-hmm. two infantry, two armor, one engineer, headquarters, and support company. And you, are you the guys that have the, the yellow and black, um, is the yellow and black uh, with the uh, the horse head in there? Yep. Which uh, like I think is anyone, anyone that's kind of like follows Vietnam um, will we'll know that that's a you know very distinctive um the very distinctive kind of uh, insignia from there. Um, I did have it on a mug until my brother. I had, a, I had that mug since I was 15 years old. My brother smashed it a few weeks ago, motherfucker. <laughs> but um, yeah, but yeah, it's a, but such, yeah, it's such yeah. a fantastic logo, such great history in it. But of course, the cavalry, um, you know, so I'm reading, uh, I don't know if you ever come across a book called uh, Empire of the Summer Moon about the Comanche, the wars against the Comanche. Um, you know, because the, ca- you know, well, that was, we, we're talking about cavalry on the frontier, but it's, you know, you you ride to battle and then you dismount and fight, um, which is you know it's um was kind of what you guys are doing, like riding riding the Bradleys, but you don't get to stay. You don't get to stay in the safety of the Bradley. Yeah, some do. You know, you get the the Bradley crew that they stay up in there, the driver, the gunner, and the Bradley commander. And I kind of got to wear two hats, so being the platoon leader and then eventually the company commander. So I 
rolling to where we were going, I sat in the Bradley commander spot and then I would always hop out and then I would go with the dismounts on the ground. So are you familiar with the warrior armored fighting vehicle that we used in, uh, in the UK? Seen them, not intimately familiar, no. Yeah. Uh, um, so very much similar to, um, very similar to a Bradley, you know, you have, uh, you have the turret, you've got the gun up there, and then you've got a bunch of angry people in the back, especially in the heat of, <laughs> in the, in, in the heat. <laughs> so I want to talk about like, you're, 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 you, um, you originally wanted to be a Navy SEAL, right? Yeah, that was the plan, man. Growing up on the beach down in Florida, you know, I spent my whole life in the water, could swim like a fish and just kind of thought that would be, you know, hell, it made sense. Uh, but as you probably read, things didn't quite work out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those ones. Like I, you know, I, I like a lot of kids wanted to be a fast jet pilot. You know, mm-hmm. it's but it's you had but the you you know you had the um, you you had the the thing that you wanted to be in the military and you wanted to serve. Um, and then when you did serve, it was uh, staff in nine like nine eleven was the like really was the final thing that pushed you through the door. Huh? Yeah. So if you go back to the Navy, you know, this was pre nine eleven when I graduated mm-hmm. college in ninety seven. And some of it was just ignorance. I was hell bent on being an officer. And the recruiter flat out told me, he's like, Jeff, they don't take guys like you off the street into buds to, you know, to get an officer slot. You got to come from the academy or enlist first. And, and some of it was just being young and stupid. Some of it was just ignorance, not growing up in a military family. I really, this sounds crazy now. I didn't really understand the difference between enlisting and being an officer. Mm. And so to me, I was like, well, I got a college degree. I, I have to go the officer route. And so they told me, so sure enough, the first year uh, applied, didn't get it. They offered me some other things in the Navy. I said, nope, I only want to be a SEAL. I'm going to apply, try, try again the next year. So during that next year is where I started having the, just the lingering shoulder problems. I played football in college and went in, got it scoped, cleaned it up a little bit. And the doc said, you know, it was much worse than we thought it was going to be. We're probably going to need to go back in there. And so they did a few months later, reconstructive surgery, cut me open, detached my deltoid, had about a 12 month recovery from that. And the Navy said, you know, man, we'll never take you with an injury like that. Hmm. So yeah, man, left Florida, moved out here to the Dallas Fort Worth area, started a career. Things were going pretty well, kind of on the fast track. And then yeah, nine 11 happened. And I just felt compelled to, to try it one more time. And, you know, obviously my, a lot of my heart was still with the the Navy and the SEAL program, but I was kind of being a realist about it. Uh, and also in doing some research, I realized that the Army and Marines were really the only one that I could at least get infantry guaranteed. While I would love eventually to try the special ops stuff, I could at least get infantry guaranteed there. And I ultimately chose the Army. Yeah. It's, uh, some people obviously think you're crazy for wanting guaranteed infantry. <laughs> I wholeheartedly agree. Like nothing, ter- like nothing terrifies me more than the idea that you'd go and join the military and then be forced into a job. That like um, it's like it's because uh, I I guess to just explain to people if you go if you so if you enlist in the navy and you go to buds and you wash out of buds you don't get to go home right they 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 right. what is it the needs of the needs of the navy yep. they they assign you to um, that doesn't sound like much fun so I think like that that guarantee and like you said like there's a lot of you know the American special forces or special operations community is huge isn't it there's all kinds of all kinds of avenues you can go down yeah. And I thought there would be more options in the army. You know, you got Ranger battalions, mm-hmm. uh, special forces, some other things we all know they do that are, you know, AKA classified or airports classified, I should say. Well, I was going to yeah, say, I we have a guest we, coming on next week from one of the air quotes classified. <laughs> from one of those. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I just ended up getting to work with those guys a lot. But yeah, man, the whole idea of, you know, 
all right, even if I got the shot of buds and things didn't work out, you know, you look out in the water and see a ship and know that's going to be your home for six months to a year. I wanted nothing to do with that. So go army. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> did you, um, I just want to talk about football for a little bit because um, I play rugby, um, play rugby growing up. And like a lot of my friends who, um, you know, like when I was in Afghanistan, like when I was in Bastion and stuff, the big camps there, I'd bump into people that I played rugby with when you were younger and, all the guys from my school that went to um, went to ended up in the combat arms. We were all from rug. We were all rugby players. Is there a high proportion of like football players, contact sport kind of people in in the army? Like especially in the infantry. Yeah, you would see most everybody in the infantry. I would say had some kind of athletic background. Maybe not necessarily college, but at least you know, growing up, uh, large majority. I don't know. Hard to say, but I know I. I I ran across plenty of guys, a lot of wrestlers. I remember in OCS, I got my ass whipped because I had done some jujitsu and then, you know, I was, I was pretty good at it. Uh, you know, better than the average guy, I guess you could say. And then, man, I got to OCS and got wrapped up with this dude who had wrestled in college. And, uh, yeah, it was a, a humbling experience to say the least. Yeah. Like those guys is absolutely service. Not, there's not really an equivalent to it here in the UK. Like obviously, you know, you can say rugby football, you can kind of see the similarities between, you know, a team sport where you get the shit knocked out of you. Um, <laughs> but that doesn't like, there's not like that, that, that wrestling program. Um, I, I'm a, I'm a big believer in, um, like in guys playing, and guys playing contact sports like that, if you want to go into the military, then like if you if you if you're not going to handle a contact sport, um, if you're not going to handle a contact sport, which you know you get to go for a shower afterwards and take your pads off, in you know in the case of American football, then you're probably not going to want to do a six month or more deployment where people are are kind of shooting at you. I think it's a good test, and but I I loved. I think what's so similar about it is the hardest games you had in uh, rugby or football are the ones that cemented friendships and made bonds and. Yep. You know, and then that's you know it's exactly the same as, as combat. It's the hard days, you know, the hard days make those bonds. The hard deployments make those bonds. Um, so I just I, I always kind of think that it's um, it's kind of like an interest one, like especially if we look at you know if we look at American football for people that aren't familiar with listening. You've basically you've got these two opposing lines in sense, haven't you? And then you're coming together and clashing. Very, it's like it's very Alexander the Great. It's very you know it's very. It's 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 that traditional kind of warfare. I think that's where it's come from. And to take that step and go up and hit someone takes takes a lot of takes a lot of guts. And I think it's a, yeah, it's an important step in the development. Um, so when you when you got into the army, is it what you is it what you expected? Did did you, yeah, you, did you find the challenge that you were looking for there? Yeah, so, like at first, as in like yeah. as a, a sorry, I should clarify as, as someone during the training period and OCS and that kind of part. Yes. I mean, starting off, I would say no. Uh, And just in the sense of, you got to understand, I was a 28 year old man going to basic training with a bunch of 18 year old kids. And the way the army works in in theory, you don't get your branch uh, if you're going to the officer side until you're halfway through OCS. But I lucked up. I'm one of the few people I had a really good recruiter. There was a way in there. So I had a letter from infantry branch, you know, guaranteeing me a spot in infantry. So going in, so most infantry guys, if you're enlisted, you go to Fort uh, basic training at Fort Benning. And so me being an officer, technically they don't know which branch I'm going to. So I went to co-ed basic training in Fort Jackson, South Carolina. And look, that's nothing against, uh, you know, females in the military. I mean, some of the baddest people I came across in the army, especially my second deployment 
were women. It was just not this idea. You, you watch all these movies, you know, you see full metal jacket, you see all these dudes out in basic training, you know, and here I am, they're just like, all right, we go up the first thing you do at a, you know, you get on a road march. All right. Boys on the left side of the road, girls on the right side of the road, go shower, shave, do whatever you got to do. You know? So it was just weird. And it wasn't that hard. And again, being older, I think I had the context and the perspective of it's just a mental thing. They're just trying to break everybody down. I'm not some punk kid off the streets. Uh, you know, and, and that's what was really cool about it, though, was seeing those punk kids that first week that were trying to act tough and want to fight everybody. You know, and nine weeks later, you see them turn into a man, into a soldier or a woman doing the same thing. So that piece was pretty cool. But yeah, from a challenge standpoint, it, it was really nothing. And then off to OCS. And OCS, man, was the dumbest 14 weeks of my life. I mean, how, <laughs> how do you, how do you, how do you take a school and in 14 weeks say, all right, we're going to take this person and we're going to turn them into a leader of men and women in combat. You know, you can't do it. And, and, and I understand that. And so what they try to do is just create stressful situations. Uh, and again, it was co-ed. Uh, this was at Fort Benning actually. And probably the hardest part of, of that, and you probably read it in the book is the night before we reported a bunch of dudes that I'd gone to basic with, and we were all going to OCS together is we all got food poisoning the night before. And so 5.30 a.m., taking the PT test, doing anything and everything in our power, not to just shit our pants while we're doing a sit-up, you know, <laughs> while, the, while the cadre is holding, yeah. our, holding our feet. One guy actually did. So, yeah, I got off to a rough start. But, yeah, you know, but the, the coolest thing about OCS, uh, where I really got to see what the Army was really like, wasn't so much from the challenges. I was lucky. My roommate was a prior service Ranger Battalion guy. And the guys that we shared a bathroom with, uh, in our barracks, one was a prior service special forces guy, and the other was an E8. And so, I mean, these dudes so just an e- an E8, Sorry, yeah. So, a master sergeant or first sergeant. Oh, okay. And yeah, yeah. So, I mean, very unusual. You don't see a lot of those guys switching and going the officer route that far mm. into a career. But yeah. this guy was was sharp, man. Chunka Smith. He uh, he's one of those guys. Made you know eight and eight. They called it. Just promoted very quickly. And so I bring those guys up because what I got to see from them is not necessarily the physical aspect of it, but it was more so the, Jeff, this school is dumb. Here's what it's really like in the room. Here's what your men are going to be looking for when you go up and stand in front of your formation for the first time. This is what these guys are going to be judging you. This is what you need to do. You know, so just to have three resources that had been there and done that kind of take me under their wing and and counsel me and mentor me to prepare me for that was a huge, huge uh, early step in my career. Yeah, that's that's amazing because that's what you're looking for a good NCO to do in an officer before when when you get to the battalion yeah. or get to your unit. So to get that before you even get there is is a that's a great head start. Like I'm I'm very much a fan of uh, prior enlisted going for officer. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a great. I don't I don't think it's necessarily something that everybody needs to do, but I I think that um, to get a good few in the mix is uh, is it just benefits everybody else on the course. I'm sure it did with you guys. Did, so you were saying. Did you um, did you read? Did you like? Because I'm just thinking about people's experiences as well, informing your own. Mm-hmm. Did you read? Uh, did you read much like Vietnam memoirs and things like that as a kid or or as a young uh, young adult? Not so much as a kid. I really, you know, I grew up in an Air Force town. Uh, grew right. up in Destin, Florida, and right next to it in Fort Walton, you got Eglin Air Force Base and Herbert Field, home of the Air Force Special Operations Community. So I was surrounded around it my whole life. None of my family had been in the military. You know, my friends, their parents were, and it was probably high school. I kind of started to, to get into some books and 
And some of it was, I think it was 1991. I think it was a junior in high school. Silence of the Lambs came out. Hmm. And I love that movie. I'm like, all right, that's what I want to do with my life. If sports don't work out, then I'm going to be, uh, you know, going to federal law enforcement. And I'm glad you said that are not serial killer. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, sometimes they say that hell, it may not be that much of a difference between some of them. But yeah, man. So uh, the advice I got from some people was, all right, the best way to get into that line of work is either to get a law degree or join the military. And so that's when the military seed for me was really planted. Uh, I kind of thought the law degree may give me a better fallback. And so I kind of picked my college of a football, had a chance to to get it paid for, but also Samford where I went, Samford University, had a really good law school. And it was probably about when I got there was where I really started getting into history and probably started off more early World War II and then got into Vietnam. And then I started reading the, the Richard Marcinko books, The Rogue Warrior and anything I could find on the SEAL program. Uh, when you so, say so Richard Marcinko, that's Dick Marcinko, right? Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. cool. Right, so... Um, is that the guy you mentioned in, in the book? Is that the guy, the local guy that gave you the that, uh, the, on the head? Was that, yeah. was that him? That's not him, but oh, okay. the guy that I mentioned, he is in those books. And right. again, I, I lost contact with them. So that's why uh, we sent it in for the DOD publication review. They told me to take his name out unless I explicitly had his information. I will say, if you go and read those books, he talks about the the first group of people that he handpicked to kind of create Red Cell or SEAL Team 6 and ultimately Red Cell, uh, he always talks about the Gold Dust Twins. And this guy was one of them. And I, w I went to the uh, Special Forces Club in London when I was working on a, a book with um, Dean Stott. And um, they have a library downstairs. And dude, I was just in heaven in this library. Yeah. I just I saw one of Dick Marcinko's books. So I took it out and I opened it and it was signed from, from him. Oh, that sure. is the yeah. hardest thing I ever did was, well, not, but... I, I can say with a clean conscience that I did not steal that book, and it was extremely. <laughs> to a, it was a. It was like a first edition of oh, one. Wow. It was like a first edition of one. I was like, mm, this is very tempted to steal right now, uh, but I don't think it's a good idea to steal from the Special Forces Club. So uh, I, I left that. Yeah, I mean, that was just freaking. You know, when I found out that you know my buddy's dad set it up for me to meet him, and you know, just. For me, it was kind of one of those life moments of, you know, you read the book and you see these guys and there's like these mythical figures and mm -hmm. oh shit, how can I do stuff like that? And then you go out and meet him and he's just this humble man, owns a bunch of land and we just go for a couple hour walk around his property. Nice. And, uh, you know, when I mentioned the book and, you know, when I asked him for some advice, he just told that story of, you know, man, it was hard. And I remember calling my mom and, you know, he said, mom, I don't know if I can do it. And she said, well, son of those other boys can, so can you. And I don't know, that was just something that always stuck with me. It's fantastic, you know, as well, you know, I encompass you in this, you know, giving up your time now. It's usually veterans, I find veterans want to, like, um, give that advice, you know, if because, like, we've all, we've all been in that position where we've been the people wanting to join. And I think it's it's a real privilege to be able to give that, you know, to be able to give that. But, like, when you have someone who's a special forces legend, like you're talking about, you're like, oh, you know, I don't want to impose on this person. But they probably feel, you know, they're a human being. They feel great about it. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. So um, yeah, let's go to uh, let's go to your first deployment because unfortunately, I mean, I could talk about stuff all day, but we do have a, a set time. It's like if you um, you you first went out to um, oh sorry, you first took over your um, a platoon in uh, 2004, right? Correct. Yes. Summer and then uh, and, and so and you and so obviously uh, you was it just you got to you got to the unit just after the invasion uh, was complete was it around that kind of it time it was about a, about a year after so invasion march of 03 oh sorry i meant uh, to the yeah. uh, to when you first got to your unit 
Uh, so that was March. So yeah, so that was March of 04 is when first cab deployed. I actually got to Fort hood when I got done, you know, so I tore my knee up in Ranger school, had surgery. Once I healed up, then I got shipped off to Fort hood in April and the unit had already deployed. And so about three weeks after that, it's just, that's when I met the unit in Iraq. So I got there in early May, 2004 and spent a couple of months just in a staff job and then took over a platoon that July. And what kind of like deployment lengths were the um, U.S. Army doing at that time? Uh, 12 months. Wow. And what, what's the kind of, because the British, the British Army do like a six-month deployment thing, and they kind of came to that during the, um, when they, because of Northern Ireland, they found like six months was a good time to mm-hmm. rotate people through. So what was the, um, what was the kind of the thinking behind 12-month deployments? Was it a necessity because of numbers or, or was, is it actually like some kind of strategic kind of like thinking behind that? You know, I, I can't speak for Big Army and what the true strategic piece behind that. From my personal experience, I would say, uh, you know, 12 months, you could say maybe is a bit too long. But, you know, you figure you get there and so it's a 12-month deployment where you're spending some of that time in Kuwait, then you're getting up there, then you're doing the right seat, left seat rides with the unit you're replacing, you know, and then you're figuring out the first month or two, just, you know, trying to figure out the difference between your ass and a hole in the ground, you know, it's, yeah. you know, you don't know what's what. And so it, it probably takes two, three, four months, I would say, to really get up to speed to where you're an effective combat fighting force. And, you know, three, four months to go, man, you're already packing shit up, getting ready to head home and, you know, mine's back elsewhere. But yeah. I think, you know, World War II was different. Korean War was different. You know, Vietnam was the first that I think I remember. And again, I'm not going to try to be a, a story in here. But the first time it was the set 12-month deployment. Yeah. Because I, I think what um, like what, what, what definitely was like a, a negative in Vietnam was doing, the, doing a 12-month deployment individually and yeah. having guys coming in like that. Like, I, I think they, they – and obviously, I think the Army's learned its lesson that – Training together, <laughs> deploying together, coming back together, you know, that is the way to to do it, you know, like, because, um, you know, fuck, dude, like some of these uh, pre-deployment packages now, by the time, like there was such a difference in the pre-deployment package, my first one to my last one, mm-hmm. um, you know, the idea should be that your pre-deployment package is hopefully harder than what you do. When, when yeah. you get on the ground, I mean, you can never, you can never replace, com- you know, you can never replace combat. And you know, with actually, while we're on that note, um, when you first, you know, you first got up there, you were up in Baghdad. What was your first? Because like, I'm assuming at that time it got pretty noisy at night. There was probably a lot of tracer in the sky, um, IDF, all that kind of stuff. What was the first time that you kind of like had that fuck? I'm in a war zone moment. You know, it was. You know, I said, I, I got there in May, spent the first couple of months shadowing other platoon leaders and, you know, some stuff went down and, but nothing that I was directly involved in. And then when I took over a platoon in July, it was pretty slow. And, you know, you're out, you may hear a pop shot here or there and, and you learn really different or, or really quick, the difference between, you know, you hear a round go off, you think, oh shit, someone shoot, you know, shit, someone's shooting at me. And you learn when someone actually is raising their rifle and, you know, pointing their scope at you because there's a difference in the sound and how that bullet goes. And so, yeah, for me, that moment, even though I heard some stuff and was out there, it was early August and, and it it was something you see out of a movie we're rolling up in our Bradleys and going up Haifa street there in central Baghdad. And they had taken a bunch of tires and trash and blocked off the road, lit it on fire. And, you know, just like you see in the movies, man, black smoke coming up, forcing us to turn left. And, you know, in hindsight, we should have 
done something else, but it's our first time getting our cherry mm. popped. And yeah, sure enough, we turned left and we did. They had a couple little two man RPG teams uh, popped off from around some corners and, and engaged us and fortunately missed. Uh, but yeah, man, the pucker factor, tell everybody, <laughs> man, you, you couldn't have, you know, driven a nail up my ass with a hammer. You know, we we're all just, you know, you, yeah. And I'm not afraid to admit that the first time we all talked about it, we were scared shitless. So yeah, that was the first time where we got back that night. We're like, it's real. Uh, yeah. It's, but it's funny. Know, the good it's thing funny about like, that is, sorry, go on. Yeah. No, I was just going to say the good thing about that is, you know, we got a chance to do it again and uh, you learn and, and you adapt. And as crazy as it sounds, you get, I don't want to say you ever get comfortable in those environments, but you learn how to control the emotions and let training take over. So you say, like, the funny thing about RPGs, unlike rounds, is you can see an RPG. Yeah. Like, and it's kind of weird because it's like this really fast bird that's just like on a like straight. Yeah. But it, it's, it always kind of blows my mind that you're like, Oh, it's an RPG. Like, it's always yeah. like, because you've seen them, like you said, like you've seen them in the movies. And then you see, like, it's kind of nah, my sorry. It, it, so if you got through the first deployment, then uh, you read the part where that big fight on September 12th, where I jumped out mm. the top of the Bradley and uh, the RPG gunner uh, pops around a corner and shoots one at me. Now, again, it was nowhere close. But like you said, I mean, like I like looked forward, saw this guy come out and shoot this thing and go way above my head. It was like, Holy shit. But the funniest part about it is when I hopped back into the Bradley and my gunner looked at me, uh, you know, you should never exit the Bradley off the top to the hatch in the middle of a firefight. And my dumbass tried to, <laughs> that's when he just looked at me when I sat back down and, you know, gun shit blowing up everywhere. He just looked at me as calm as he could be. And just said, sir, that's the dumbest fucking thing I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's one of the, that's one of the downsides of armored infantry for the platoon commander. Cause you need to be up in the turret, but then, if you're so like the reason you couldn't go out the back was because I'm assuming your turret was traversing back and forth as you, uh, side to side, so you can't get through the back, or you're going to get chopped in half. <laughs> yep, <laughs> you exactly. Know, essentially, so it's one of the it's one of like a, a flaw with a, the kind of system. I have no idea how you get around that. Well, you have to just jump out into the bullets, basically. It's, yeah, yeah, it's it's um, it's where the yeah, old football days came in handy. Yeah, but yeah, dude, we have a, a, exactly the same as the warrior. Did you have bar armor on the side of the uh, Bradleys or um? Like how, like how, how did you kind of climb up and down off the side of them? So we had, uh, over there, we had reactive armor on the side, which made it a heck of a lot easier. You could throw the hatch off, kind of jump off the turret and you kind of had a little bit wider landing spot. Normally you would just have the side and they were like, you know, little links you can put your feet in, but with reactive armor, it probably gave you six, eight inches that I could jump down, put my feet on there and then take a little bit larger, probably four or five foot drop down to the ground. Yeah. So we, are cause, um, Usually our comms would be shit, so we had to do the old school climb up to speak to. The, I was it used to be in the back, so I used to like climb up onto the turret. But we had the bar arms, so we had the bar armor for the RPGs, and then mm-hmm. we'd have um, the chobham armor, which is like so uh, thicker plates. But um, yes, yeah, so we had the same things. Just like you know, you have to, you have to um, like these these are multi million dollar machines. But when it comes down to it, you still got to be flesh and blood jumping out, the, <laughs> jumping exactly. out the, uh, the 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 top of it. But it sounds like you used to. Um, like you used to like see a lot of the enemy, um, which is something that like I never never really happened for me in Iraq. So I'm always interested when I hear s- stories from people who are, you know, you you these guys were not shy about getting out into the open and and engaging you. No. Um, what like how would you kind of like how would you kind of like rate the enemy? How would you kind of of, of this first deployment because obviously Iraq was constantly changing. But on that first deployment. What would you kind of like su- summarize the enemy and, and like, you know, kind of rate them as a, as an opposing force? And they were good. 
they, they were good. Now, the way Haifa Street, just kind of a little context behind it, is Haifa Street itself is this nice, large highway and very nice buildings directly on the highway. A lot of uh, Saddam's Republican Guard, military people would live there. Now, behind that was just straight shantytown, some of the poorest mm-hmm. parts of Baghdad, raw sewage running through the streets, just a maze of mud huts. Uh, so kind of a, a tale of the haves and the have-nots. And when see, you had kind of a loyal base there, and then when the insurgency really kicked off in April of 04, of course, a lot of that was in Sadr City and then out west in Fallujah. And so you had a lot of the Al-Qaeda, uh, the Sunni Al-Qaeda fighters uh, moving out of Fallujah and moving in and kind of setting up shop on Haifa Street. And so you had a large Al-Qaeda presence there, multiple countries, uh, nationalities, as well as the Saddam loyalists. And a lot of these military trained. And so what they kind of the, the TTP tactic that they would use is those guys knew how to set up a coordinated ambush, a coordinated attack, whatever it may be. And so they would plan for one of those, bring in fighters from different areas, maybe every two, three, four weeks, kind of depending on what it was. And in the meantime, they would go into those shanty areas and they would just pay that extremely, extremely poor populace, uh, the kids and teenagers to harass us with grenades. Uh, so grenades were just uh, the bane of our existence, man. I mean, it was of the 34 men I had under me, 27 Purple Hearts at the end of wow. that deployment. And I want to say uh, maybe all but one were grenade shrapnel. Uh, so wild. did you used to have to drive, were you, were you, did you used to be batting down in the vehicles then when you were moving with the vehicles batting down? Or? Yeah, so you, know, you couldn't get in there with the Bradleys. And just due to how oh. bad Haifa Street got, they banned Humvees. So you had to be in an armored vehicle, a Bradley or an M1, to even go out, go out in that area. So an M1, M1 is a main battle tank, correct? Yes, yes, Abram Stang. And we could get some of those attached to us. They weren't directly a part of my task force. But, yeah, so to get back in those, you know, and they were smart. So they would set up the big coordinated attacks kind of on Haifa Street, and we can get into some of those. But a lot of our patrolling would be back in the slum area I was talking about. And again, man, it's just a maze of shit. And you can't take vehicles back there. Uh, Kazavak becomes just a bitch because uh, there's no rhyme or reason. It's easy to get lost back there. Now, of course, in time, we, we learned all the roads. You know, but what made it so, – so back to your original question of you know, how would I rate them. Uh, I, I say they were smart because they – you know, they were a numerically inferior force that utilized the populace to kind of in some way equalize the numbers by using the kids and the emotional toll. They know American ROE. Uh, they know morally, you know, what the United States and other coalition forces stand for. And so, okay, what better way to overcome that or challenge them on that is to go pay a nine-year-old kid to throw a grenade at Americans. And man, you can, you can justify and objectify the thing any way you want to, but no one wakes up and says, man, I hope I get to shoot a kid today. Yeah. And well, just. So what, what was the rules of engagement? Because when we were in Afghanistan, they brought in a thing uh, called courageous restraint, which was basically would be along the lines of if I see a kid trying to throw a grenade at you, don't shoot him, just take the grenade. So it was, it was, was the essence of that. So, you know, it was like because I mean, as a platoon commander, that's such a horrible thing to have to weigh up between. Do I want to, you know, do I want to risk my guys getting shot or do I want to? take the mental toll of making one of my guys like because you know it's not just about the platoon commander obviously you don't want you don't want your guys to go through that mental toll so right how'd you how'd you how how did you kind of like balance that up 
So, yeah, so at the time, the ROE was not nearly as restrictive as, say, it was my second deployment. You know, it was if, if we're engaged, uh, yeah, you can engage back. I don't care if the little mm-hmm. bastard has a grenade or not. Now, like you said, you know, and talks with my men, uh, you know, and, and we, we talked about it very openly is, and it's, it's really interesting. You had one of your other guests that I listened to said something and, and it's going to sound like I'm copying him, but it was, it was my philosophy. And it was, you know, man, if you're put in that situation, I'm ordering you to fire back. Mm. Yeah. That was because, Scott, Scott Hughes, yep, yep. Yep. Because I wanted to take that burden off of them and put it on myself and the other leaders of the platoon that, you know, they're not doing, they're, they're not shooting that child. You know, they're doing what they've been ordered to do to help protect others. You know, because if you don't, one guy one day didn't pull the trigger and he, he probably beat himself up worse because he now worried every time he said, you know, every time we go out the gate now, that kid could still be out there and he could end up killing somebody next time because I didn't do my job. You know, so it worked both ways, man. It was just, it was just tough, man. It was a, it was, it was a true insurgency. We didn't have a whole lot of IEDs. We did have a sniper problem that came in, but I mean, these guys, they, they came out. I say it, man, they, they brought it and they brought it good. It's one of those things that there is no good solution to that. It's like one way or another, it's going to suck. Like some things about war, there's no eliminating risk. There's no eliminating suffering. It's going to fucking suck like that. Whatever you like, whatever decision makes it and you've got to find the one that sucks the fucking least. And that's like that. I think a lot of people maybe have a hard time with that because you know, do we have fucking like you know, live in America, live in the UK? We have great fucking countries that we live in, and uh, things are good. Uh, and then when you go out to these places, all of a sudden it's like, oh, I don't have a choice of good or bad. I have a choice of least bad. You right. know, and that 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 can be really like that's fucking hard. You know, it's really really hard. Um, so that that first that first tour, I was really interested about the whole grenades thing, to be honest, because it's such a such a simple tactic, but such a fuck like. You know, you have these you have these fucking Bradley armored fighting vehicles, which are good. You know, I'm sure like they look like good bits of kit. A mm-hmm. um, lot of firepower on them, but a little kid up on the roof with a grenade can like these guys that have been through all these training, all this training. Maybe they've been in ranger school, all this stuff. Kid with a grenade, you know, like infantry urban warfare is when it when you boil it down is a very simple. So simple, kind of brutal affair. One of the things I wanted to highlight on here is because I really like, like, you um you took some uh, you took some casualties. I believe it was from a grenade, mm-hmm. and you were like, "How the fuck am I going to get the Bradley in here?" And I and I thought to myself, like, "Run over the cars over, I run the cars <laughs> over," because there's all. That. And then you were like, "Fuck it, run the cars over," because yeah. like I was reading that from the point of view of like I've done the free my free deployments now. But like I was like you you know you were quite fresh at the time and a lot of young officers might have been worried about that. So I fucking loved that dude. I was like, yes. When you were like <laughs> just fucking like you were like, I don't care what damage you do, just get the fucking get the Bradley over and you say you just crunched over cars, you got the guys in the back and everyone was okay. I thought that's a great lesson for young officers, um young young leaders in general in that story. It's like sometimes you're gonna have to make a mess. Like <laughs> You know, yeah. worry about that later. Get the guys out first. So, yeah, do you want to talk people through that? Yeah, no, and it was, you know, so like you said, we were going back in this series. We call them the hotel series. It was nine 17-story buildings, and they kind of, wow, you know, almost like a W shape right there on Haifa Street. And we were going to set up shop in the back of one. Right when we got up there, the slum area behind it, they chucked some grenades over the wall and hit a couple of my guys. And so when I come running up, 
I see one of my one of my NCOs just with his hand up by his neck, and I see blood gushing out of it. So I mean, I'm thinking his jugular's hit. As it turns out, it was it, it cut his neck, but it was just more superficial. Hmm. It was just bleeding a ton. But so that's all I see, and so that's when you know, and I say I got two other guys that are hit, and you know, it's that all right, well, shit, we, they dropped us off on the street. Bradley's can't come back here. It's a narrow road and there's a bunch of cars. There's probably 20 cars in the way to get back here. <laughs> you know, and it was the advice and, and this is nothing new or noble that's been passed on, you know, from officers through NCOs, uh, through multiple wars. And it's, you know, sometimes when, when the bullets are fly, flying and the shit hits the fan, stop, take a breath, show a little tactical patience and then execute. And, you know, I, I see this guy that again, I think it's his jugular. And so, you know, that's just kind of what I did. I just stopped and it wasn't a, uh, inability to act. It was, what's the quickest fucking way we can get this dude out of here. And I just turned and looked and it was like that way. And so, yeah, man, those guys came and it was wild, man. We had some good laughs about it afterwards. You know, once we realized all the guys were okay, but yeah, man, I just stood there. And like I said, I just looked at the driver and I was like, I want you to come up here. I don't care what you got to run over, but I want you to drop the fucking ramp right where my feet are right now. Yeah. And sure enough, that young kid did. And it was wild. He, I don't know, like a fender or a bumper or something on one of the cars he ran over and got stuck into Bradley. And so it was wild when he come pull like the, you know, the ramp drops, you see this bumper going down with him, <laughs> slam on the ground and we get the guys in the back. And I just remember going back later and I went to my boss and I just said, Hey, uh, you know, cause when we do stuff like that. We always go back and write a check to, you know, if we damage a car or something or kick down a door. And I just said, Hey, sir, we, uh, <laughs> the, the check may be a little bit larger tomorrow. Yeah. Than normally, is. Fuck. But, but they were cool, yeah. man. That, that leadership, that chain of command above me, then those guys were outstanding. I mean, they, I walked them through what happened, why I did what I did. And they just said, good job, Jeff. Yeah. So you felt fully supported from the, from your hierarchy then during that operation, um, during that deployment. Oh yeah, no doubt. Yeah, that's that's fantastic as well. Um, I speak, I'm you know I can't speak for everyone, but I certainly know that I'm not the only one that felt that there was like a a target on our back if we pulled the trigger at the wrong time or anything like that. You know, one of my friends, I don't know if you come across the episode. He you know he's been he got hounded through the courts for years because he uh, cleared cleared some enemy positions, and then they had some ambulance chasing lawyers say that they'd killed these farmers farmers with uh, farmers with uh, dushkas. <laughs> um and uh but yeah like so we always felt like that because we'd seen like the the witch hunts of like northern island veterans and things so i'm always kind of like very like i think it's great like you should be able to like you should, the only thing you should be worrying about is the enemy you know you should not be worrying about your own kind of hierarchy of things so well, um, uh, I, we have that happens the second deployment so i know exactly what you're talking about yeah so i was just gonna say let's come on the second deployment because it's like first first deployment you know you're a young officer you did it like you, you learn, learn a lot. I think it's fair to say, you know, for you, oh, you yeah. had your, yeah. um, um, and, um, you, you know, you saw, you learn, learn a lot. You saw a lot. Um, like I want people to go out and read a book, so I'm not going to tell them everything that goes in there. It's just, just, I'm, but I will say that you, you saw a lot. You saw a lot of stuff that probably you're not going to unsee. Um, mm-hmm. Which is again something that is unavoidable, unfortunately. When you know young men go to war, young women go to war. I have to keep saying that now because otherwise I don't. I get angry DMs. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah, so um, you were you uh, you fought, so you're gonna go for, you're gonna go for the uh, to the uh, what's it called special forces um, selection course yeah, is it yeah, for the SFA, for, yeah, green, special forces for, for the Green Berets? Yeah. But they asked you to stay on as company commander for a second deployment. 
They did. You know, and some of that had to do, there was that transition from what I mentioned before, the siloed infantry and armor battalions. We were now going to these combined arms battalions. And so with all the moving around, uh, one nine cav who I'd been a part of, we ended up moving over to one eight cav and one eight had historically been an armor unit. And so we moved over there upon that redeployment. They had no infantry captains in the queue to take command. Right. And so they came to me and just said, Hey, if you will, you know, we know to, to go to SFAS, you got to be a first Lieutenant promotable. And I was still several months away from that. So my bosses were, well, Jeff, let's just, you take command. We'll let you get 90 days. That way you're guaranteed to get rated. It'll be in your service record. Uh, by then we should have some captains in and then you can go off and, you know, try out for SF and it doesn't work out. Then I would just would have gone to a different unit. Mm. But, uh, so yeah, so I, thought when I took command, what I thought was going to be a temporary 90 day stint. And then near the end of that, sure enough, an infantry captain showed up one day and bosses called me into the office. And I thought that was going to be, thanks for all you've done, go have a good life. And instead they said they were real happy with the job that I was doing. And the fact that we had seen so much combat, that first deployment and with myself still being there and the other senior NCOs, you know, cause obviously there's a lot of turnover when you sure. come home from the deployments. Yeah. But kind of our core group of, of leadership was still together. And 1-8, who we had gone to, and I don't want to discount, they had seen some action that first deployment, but nothing on the level that 1-9 have or had. And so uh, my boss is the battalion commander and brigade commander. They kind of liked the idea of having a, a combat-tested group that had been together. And so then when we got there, they could kind of put us out of the forefront for maybe some of the tougher missions while the rest of the units got up to speed. Uh, so they asked me if I would pull or at least delay my special forces packet for when we came back, uh, they would let me stay in command as a lieutenant and, and take the company back to Iraq. Yeah. I mean, I think that's such, such just such good thinking about it. Like you got guy, like there's no, there's no replacing experience. Um, and especially the level that by 2006, we're talking November, 2006, you go back out, things have yeah. gone to fucking shit. Yep. <laughs> so it's not you're not you're not going like, hey, we're gonna go peace this this is gonna be a peacekeeping deployment. It's like you know you're gonna be in the shit. So I, I think like I'd take my hat off to those um to to your uh, hierarchy there for for doing that because um that's just fucking that so like I like to see common sense in the military every now and again you come across it. And it's like <laughs> it's wow rare. Yeah. it's like holy shit, it's fucking rocking horse shit. Like that's um pretty pretty impressive. So um yeah, do you wanna talk us talk us through like um Talk, do you want to talk us through your deployment and um, yeah, just just roll with with uh, what you're comfortable talking about and yeah, man. So it was, you know, much different. Got off to just a just a shitty start from the get go. Uh, multiple things, uh, you know. Had my my first son three months before, so I went the first time, didn't have any kids, and when I went back this time, I had to say goodbye to this three year old mm-hmm. three month old little boy, and then. The weekend before we left, one of my soldiers had an unfortunate alcohol-related incident and died. And so we had to have a memorial service literally like two days before we boarded planes for Kuwait. Then we get to Kuwait and you know, eventually get up into Baghdad. And this time, it's the first deployment on Central Baghdad, Haifa Street, very Sunni-dominated area just, just north of the international zone. And this go-around, we're in eastern Baghdad. Uh, in my AO, the FOB I was at was a little bit further south, Bob Rustamaya, but my AO was up in the area, primarily Obedi and SUJ. I still can't figure out Shara Umjadir, however the hell they pronounced it, but kind of in the, the outskirts uh, of Sadr City and you know, 
anyone who knows anything about the Iraq war has heard of Sadr City. And we couldn't go in there directly, uh, maybe bits and pieces, but that was all reserved for the special ops guys. But yes, I mean, the first. So, sorry, I just want to clarify on that. So, like, like conventional forces, you just literally, it was just like a no go because it was too hot to go in there. Well, it was some of the, just the, the political piece of the uprising in 2004, where mm. conventional forces did go in, uh, the big April uprising. And I think part of the, and I could be butchering this or hell making it up, but probably was just the, all right, no more Americans going to Sadr City, at least conventional forces, to your point. Right. So, yes, yeah, so again, we could kind of, you know, if we needed just to change our route to avoid so we weren't using the same route all the time, you know, we could cut in there, but we didn't actively patrol or go after targets in Saudi so City. That was that was done by, so that was done by the Iraqi army? Yeah. Well, the Iraqi army and the special ops guys. And you talk about small world. I've listened to so many podcasts, of, you know, special ops guys and talking about 06, 07, going into Sadr City and, you know, having to have American conventional forces lead their ways in and, you know, with all the EFPs that we had going on. And I'm laughing like, those were my guys, man. That was us. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So then we, you know, the right seat, left seat rides, uh, you know, just a shit story, man. We, the unit we were replacing, it was, it was our engineer company and their engineer company. And it was the last day of the left seat, right seat ride. So they added like two or three of their guys, the outgoing unit. Uh, sorry, so that's, sorry, that's a familiarization patrol, is it? Correct. Yeah. Right so okay, sorry, you get yeah. there the first week, we're the incoming unit, the uh, the established unit. You know, so you, you've been there, you drive, and it's predominantly your men. It'll be like me and three or four of my men. We spend a week doing that, so we learn the terrain. And then over the course of these two weeks, you kind of eventually invert those. And by the end, it's all the new guys taking over, and it's only one or two of the outgoing guys. Well, on this particular mission, the engineer company, it was, uh, I think, two or three of the outgoing guys. Uh, the very last patrol. I mean, those guys' shit was packed up. Most of those, you know, the, most of those guys were already on a plane back to Kuwait, and on the way home from that mission, they were hit by an EFP, and two of those guys from the outgoing unit were killed, and one of the one eight engineers who I was a part of, he was killed. You know, so within. Oh, and by the way, during all this time, our twelve month deployment we talked about before, they announced the surge, so we now knew it was going to be a fifteen month deployment, oh, and we got there in November. So you already, know, you already know you're going to miss Thanksgiving and Christmas. Well, now you're going to miss two Thanksgivings and two Christmases. So oh, nice. it was well just planned. a, yeah, man. So it was just a, just a kick in the nuts from the get go. And the, the days of hyper street and a, you know, a, a visible enemy that would come out and engage you that you could return fire at. Uh, that was not this fight. This was all EFPs and snipers. And there was no real active company level or platoon size patrols to go out, kick in doors, go after targets. It was 24 seven presence in sector drive around and literally, man, you know, sometimes it just felt like the, you know, the mission was just, let's go drive around for eight hours until we get blown yeah. up. Well, that's what we did. Like, dude, we had our missions in, um, so we, like I said, we were in the warrior and they'd be like, right, well go out until you find the, like by find an EFP, it means probably hit one. Yeah, and then and then we'll track the guys back and do an operation to get them, and then we do that, and then they let them go. You think like, what the fuck is kind of going on here? But they, um, how would the like, what was a Bradley like um, in dealing with VFPs? Uh, <laughs> not good. Right. You know, it, it would withstand some blast. I don't want to say that. That's kind of a blanket statement. You know, there's some that. Uh, you know, it, it would take it pretty good. Now, sometimes, and you know, the EFP, sometimes that slug may not fully, 
get to full slug and when it yep. hit the reactive armor, the Bradley would hold up pretty good. You know, so we had some that survived it, but you know, when it was all said and done, uh, every Bradley assigned to me was coded out or destroyed. Now that so can be a little bit like K kills. Uh, you mean K like K kill? Or... Yeah. Now destroyed doesn't necessarily mean I did have uh, a lot of Bradleys burned to the ground. They figured out real quick, man, the enemy, they were, and this time it was more of the, the Shia and especially the Iranian influence that was really picking up sure. in 2006. And I mean, heck, we would get mortars on our patrol base with, you know, Farsi writing on it in 2006. And yet everyone wanted to say the Iranians had nothing to do with what was going on. Yeah. But yeah, so they figured out how to, you know, you could do a smaller EFP and put it in the ground and angle it up. They realized where the fuel cells were on the Bradleys. So they could hit that pretty easy and it would burn down. Uh, it got so bad they attached a, a tank platoon to me. So I had five M1s, you know, and supposedly that thing can stand up to anything. And uh, three of the five M1s were were destroyed as well. Yeah, because um like we do we had exactly the same thing. We had to follow behind challenges, which are basically you know, main main battle tanks. So I just want to get your opinion on the EFP things actually, because Anyone that I, this is something I want to ask everyone because one one of the things that pissed me off when they killed that Iranian guy, uh, the general, I forget his name now. And don't get some me wrong, money. yeah, yeah, so money. I was fucking glad when he died, and I was even happier when I looked at the pictures of him. But um, as someone that was on the end, because we had exactly the same thing, we knew we were on the end of Iranian arms. Kind of fucking like, how did you feel at the time? And then um, when it happened, how did you feel at the time, knowing where they were coming from? Nothing was getting done about it. Man, it was, you know, we brought up earlier about support from upper chain of command, the first deployment, not so much the second deployment. And things had just become much more political on a, on a larger scale, not just in my AO. So, yeah, man, it was frustrating as hell. You know, as part of the surge, we had to move out from the big five and go set up a patrol base. So we moved into one right in the corner of Sadr City and AO expanded up into an area. And the locals told us, they said, man, whatever you do, don't, you know, you guys can hang out here. We'll leave you alone. You leave us alone. Kumbaya, everybody's happy. They're like, but don't go up there because that's where all the Iranians are. That's where all the shit is. And, and like, man, I don't know if this stuff is true. I'm just telling you what a bunch of Iraqis yeah. told me and what some yeah. military intelligence people say they were able to confirm. But yeah, so that was kind of the uh, the hub for Baghdad where they would come in and, and build all this stuff. And then they would disperse it out through the different pockets and different militias around the city. And so, yeah, of course we went up there. They told us we should so we know, you know we didn't find shit you know throughout the whole time but you know yeah every time we would come up and try to mention anything about iranian it was always just hush you know that we don't we don't put that after action reports uh you know the one in particular i remember about you know the mortar shell and seeing the farsi on it uh ironically that piece didn't make the final you know the final cut of what was reported up and i again that's way the hell above my pay grade but it was frustrating as hell that we knew we had this problem Mm-hmm. We had people, hell, we had Iraqis that openly acknowledged from Sadr City that, yeah, they fought against us in 2004, but all was cool now because we shared a patrol base with an Iraqi security company. And uh, look, I'm not saying I believed everything they said. I'm not naive, but yeah. you know, everything just kept coming back to this Iranian influence and nothing wanted to be done. It was still, well, oh, just, you know, let's go out build schools and build hospitals and then have them blow them up and you guys drive around and get blown up again. So yeah, it was, uh, it was kind of a, what the, what the hell are we doing here, man? You know, it's, it's, it's tough. Yeah. Jeff, we're going to, we're running out of time. So I wanted to lock you into doing a part two, if you're cool with that. And yeah, before yeah, we go sure. to the rest of the deployment, cause I don't want to rush. 
I don't want to rush through this stuff. Um, let's just talk about a bit about um, um I want to give uh, so you got the Legion Eight T-shirt on there now. We'll obviously we're going to talk about more about the rest of the deployment, but um, what what's the kind of like uh, you've 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 got some kind of like um like uh, what's what's the word? Is charity the right word or um like um organization or something? Yeah, yeah, charity, nonprofit, five hundred one c three. We're the U.S. man. We got to have three names for the same thing. But, <laughs> yeah, so we'll get to it. The second deployment, you know, the unit nickname was Legion. Uh, the book it's called Legion Rising. And, you know, spoiler alert, but hell, it's in the back of the book, so I'm not giving anything away. Uh, that second deployment, I lost eight men, and we just always refer to them as the Legion 8. And, you know, we've had some suicides from the unit since we've been back as well. And, uh, you know, came home for good 2008. I had some, some tough times, some struggles on my own, and when I finally kind of got myself back to, to being me, Started this CrossFit workout that started as a one-day workout that ultimately kind of led to uh, multiple gyms around the country doing it, then 100 gyms around the country doing it. And so we went the nonprofit route. And uh, yeah, every year we do different t-shirts. And, you know, we purposely kind of kept it small. Just uh, I got a full-time job. I got four kids and, you know, <laughs> a lot going on in life. But, you know, yeah, we just try to, to take these guys and what better way to honor their memory and their families and their sacrifice than to you know, do this workout and, and do other events and, and giving back and doing good in the world uh, and do it all in the spirit of honoring these men. Yeah, dude, I, I love that. Um, you know, like uh, we just mentioned briefly before we come on camera, like I'm like, there's, there's a huge, like the, the vet, this veteran community thing, I think can be the most powerful force in the world. And I, you do see it get, you know, you do see it get, um, used for a lot of, you know, used for a lot of good in this kind of, uh, you know, in this kind of instance. And um, I, I think, um, I think we're in a real kind of like a transition period at the moment. I think there's been a, um, I think there was like an outpouring of kind of like goodwill towards veterans at first, I think partly in like as a knee jerk to the way that how shitty Vietnam veterans were treated. Mm-hmm. And I think that swung over to being way too far on the other end. And you got a lot of people. A lot of people, honestly, frankly, because just a, just because you're a veteran doesn't mean you deserve shit, in my opinion. You Amen. know, like because you might have been a fucking shitbag. Um, but now I think what we're seeing is people who are willing to like slap down some people who maybe not like, hey, like, just because you're a veteran doesn't mean you get to behave that way. And like all of a sudden now, there's like I, f- I feel like now it's like it's a great core is coming out of this uh, veteran community of people supporting each other's businesses, people supporting each other's podcasts, books, all that. And now I think that you know books called Legion Rising. I think right now we have veteran community rising, and, and we're going to have like a real powerful. I think there's going to be a real powerful entity over like the next couple of generations. Yeah, man, I do too. And it's so refreshing to hear you say that. And you and I are lucky. We can say what a lot of people probably want to is, <laughs> you know, just just because I raised my right hand and volunteered to go do something does not give me, you know, a lifetime membership to this. I get to be a piece of shit club to whoever I want because I serve. You know, it's just, now, now look, I'm not taking away, you know, good on everybody that served. I'm not, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, sure. I'm not knocking that, but, but you're right. I, I think, you know, it was way one way. Now the pendulum swung. And, and I think there needs to be a little bit of balance in the middle. And there's so many organizations out there that are starting to do, they, they have the best intentions and want to do the right things. But sometimes we just end up cannibalizing ourselves, which is exactly why I said I kept it small earlier, because, you know, there's, there's so many people with a very similar mission statement than mine. And uh, right now at this time in my life, I can't give it its full attention that I want to 
So I keep it in a way that's manageable where I can do good, uh, make a difference, don't make a damn penny off of it. Everything we raise goes to other veterans organizations or veterans in need. And in some cases, people outside of the military that have been affected by tragedy and trauma. Uh, but what I think you're going to see is this, we've had this explosion of nonprofits. I forget how many hundred thousand are out there. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, but think of it like the dot-com boom way back when. You had all these companies brought up and then you started seeing consolidation. And to your point about the power, I think as a veteran community, if we can start to consolidate a lot of these, uh, it doesn't, you know, people are afraid of losing the personal link and touch to whatever nonprofit they started and or associated with. Uh, but the real power comes from combining yourself with other like-minded people that share a similar vision and a similar mission. And that's when sometimes it takes money to make money. And if you grow and scale these things, uh, then you can really make a positive impact and difference in the world. And I think, I, I hope we start to see more of that. I want to be a part of that in whatever capacity that be, whether I'm absorbing into someone else or potentially absorbing others into mine. And then from there, I think you're going to start seeing more. Look at this generation of politicians. You barely see any veterans in there. But look, you're starting to see the younger ones creep in now. So I look a generation from now, and I think it's going to be all these people that have these great ideas uh, that have served uh, in the military. I hope to see more and more of them serve in public office and public service over the next generation. Yeah, me too. Well, the way I think of it, Jeff, is like, you could have great fire teams all over the place, but if everyone's working and they're just doing their own thing, then you're never going to, you know, you're, you're never going to get the desired effect. Whereas if you have a bunch of different fire teams that come together to form sections or squads and platoons, companies and battalions, that's when you can get things, you know, that's when you actually get things done. And you win wars like what we have at the moment, um, I think, as as well as I, I think. um a lot of these bigger veteran companies, we've been too willing as veterans to hand over ownership to civilians. Does mean we don't need the civilian expertise because we do. But I think like a lot of these big veteran um, nonprofits have been quote unquote hijacked yep. because they started off as great ideas. And now it's basically it's it's money for board members. Um, but I think people are becoming wise about that as well, you know, it's, it's possible to be more transparent now. So if a company isn't transparent, you're like, well, right, I'm not going to be supporting that company. People are becoming more aware. Social media helps it. And people will vote with their money about where they put it into it. But I think that's great, great of what you're saying, though, dude, is about getting people to be 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 open to the idea of amalgamating. Be open to the idea of amalgamating. Be open to the idea of working into someone else's hierarchy rather than being your own. I think that's a great, really good, really good point. Um, it's not, I haven't really heard anyone say that before, but I think that's uh, I think that's really fucking powerful. Well, I think too one of the things you're seeing, you know, you talked about some of these examples, and I know who you're referring to of bringing civilians in, and it ultimately becomes uh, a free paycheck for a lot of people. You know, a lot of those were ones that were established early on. So now, what you're seeing, if we start talking about this combination and growing larger combined nonprofits together, you're going to start having veterans. Uh, hell, look at me. You know, I'm, I've been out. I got 12 years business experience now. Now, look, I'm not saying I'm qualified to go run one of these things. I'm just saying there are a hell of a lot more of me's out there that have been out in the business world that 10 years ago, veterans didn't have someone, another veteran True. equally qualified to hand it off to. Well, now you're seeing veterans move up, you know, VP, senior VP, CEO roles. So we have people that can be mentors and advisors. Mm -hmm. uh, so the opportunities there is just now, again, because we're so dispersed, uh, we need to go back to that economy of force, I think. and. Again, that's where I think we're really going to make a difference. 
All right, Jeff, welcome back for part two, mate. Appreciate you coming back in uh, to the podcast. Oh, brother, great to be back, man. Uh, appreciate you having me on and excited to to finish off this conversation. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I was just saying off off air, just so the listeners know, um, like when I was reading the um, the book in preparation for this, like I got to be honest, dude, it took me back. Um, it took me back hard to Iraq, um, and and also kind of just just to post tour um, generally and. Um, you know, you get that with a with a good book. You know, it's a good book will will give you the, the will, a good book will will give you like th- those kind of like those familiar feelings because we're all human beings. We've all gone through the same things. When did you know? When did you know that something had changed on that second tour of yours? When did you know that you were a different person? It was uh, than the one who'd gone out to theater. Yeah, you know, it was probably oh. A little about halfway through, uh, I think the first time I really remember it was about halfway through that deployment. And you know, it's it's, it's the prologue of the book. You read about it. Uh, you know, the the scene in the mirror when that happened. I, I just felt this instant shift in uh, just going from this guy to just all of a sudden just being cold and and distant and just full of hate and rage. Uh, you know, and trying to compartmentalize that to still do the right thing for my men. Uh, but whenever I was alone, it was just, you know, so, so that's when I first started to feel it. Uh, and then, you know, I left command a couple of months after that and just went to a staff position, which, you know, needed to be done and my, my time was up. Uh, but, you know, in hindsight, uh, it was probably the best and worst thing to happen. It, it allowed me to kind of get removed from the situation a little bit, but it also gave me a lot more time to myself. And mm. uh, I just, kind of felt it creeping in marriage was on the rocks again and it's all this stuff building up and you know it's i could like consciously feel it feel it building up inside of me and yeah man when we got home i think it all just really kind of came to a head so with that with that in mind do you think it's a good idea because you you got out of the army as soon as you could pretty much after that tour right do you think that there's some way of like this, this? This should be some kind of like cooling off period. I don't mean for people to change their minds and stay in. I don't mean this as a recruiting tool, but as um, you know, as a way of keeping you with the group that you went through those experiences with. Like, how long were you with those guys for? Yeah, so my situation was a little unique. We kind of touched on it before. Is I got to be a platoon leader and a company commander essentially with the same group, and you know, platoon leader, executive officer, and then company commander. Uh, so me and those guys have been together two deployments now, the 18 months in between deployments. So we were incredibly tight. And, you know, there are a lot of perks that came with that. Uh, the experiences and losing all the men that we did, I think, made that bond and closest that much more painful mm. uh, and, and hard to deal with. But to answer your question, yeah, I, I think that's one of the problems uh, with, you know, look, the, the Army, they're trying to do the right thing. And all the services are uh, provide services when people come back. But the fact of the matter is, you know, you come back, you do, you know, seven, 10 days of in-processing, in-processing whatever it is, uh, whatever redeployment activities they call it back at the base, and then everyone goes on leave for 30 days. Mm. And it's great. You get to spend that time with your family. Uh, but man, you talk about just coming to a screeching halt of going through all that shit, uh, you know, especially in particular in our case, back-to-back deployments, uh, and then everybody just scatters to the wind. Yeah. And you're kind of lost in your own thoughts. Uh, you know, then you come back, guys start, like my case, people start getting out of the army. Uh, other people are, are switching units. And so, yeah, I, I don't know if I have the right answer, but I do know that, 
you know, we got back in January and by the time I signed out on terminal leave in April, I would say over 50% of the unit was already gone. And that's, uh, and that's when I think you really need each other the most. Dude, I can't help but think that those, like the Second World War veterans, for instance, the fact that they had so much time on troop ships and, and, and you know, together in, in theater at the end of the war was was like a really important part in their processing. And, you know, just because we've got the technology um, and the transportation to get guys home in fucking 16 hours from theater maybe doesn't mean that we should, you know? There's another interview I was listening to a while back. I can't remember who it was. But he was kind of saying the same thing of, you know, one day, you know, you start the morning, you're in country and 48 hours later, you're at 7-Eleven getting a Slurpee, you know, and, you know, with one of your boys. And while, yeah, that that sounds great, uh, that's not near enough time to to decompress and to start adjusting. I just think there needs to be a little bit more of a subtle uh, or maybe extended readjustment time uh, as opposed to just the, hey, you're back and that's great. Go spend all this time with your family, which. Don't get me wrong, you need to do, uh, but it's equally important, I think, to spend some decompression time with that military family as well and go through it together. Yeah, I mean, and look, there's people that can walk off a patrol and walk into their house and be fine with their family. There's those people out there. But I think better for them to have to wait a bit longer than to bring other people back too quickly because it might just be one incident. It might be one incident. It might be someone driving recklessly because, you know, they're still in that fucking tour mode. Um, you know, we I, I know when we got back from Iraq, the, one of the units we were with, they drove out three guys like they went blasting out the gate and were dead a moment later, you know, because they were just they were still in the tour mentality of just fucking being reckless and, you know, driving through traffic like everyone's going to get out the road for you. It doesn't happen, you know, when you get home. Um, well, you mentioned like they took like was it because of a high turnover or something that you had so many of the guys were gone? Like, is it is that something is that like a policy in the American military to Turn, turn guys over between different units. Yeah, in some cases, it's just it's timing. Uh, you know, I, I'll speak to the officer side, for example. Uh, there is a whole slew of us. We were at the captain captain level. We were getting out, and uh, basically, you know, I'd say seventy five percent of the guys that I was closest with, every one of us had made the decision before we came back to resign our commissions and start the paperwork. Uh, so we wow. were kind of on the same. And, and some of it was uh, just time to move on. Some people didn't have any you know, bigger expectations out of the military than to do their first, uh, you know, their first obligation. Others, you know, in, in my case, uh, you know, it was, it was family. It was also after what I had just gone through that last deployment, I was very disenchanted with, uh, with the army and kind of what we were doing there and, and what the mission was. Uh, you know, so everybody has their different reasons. Now, you know, on the, the enlisted side, some of it is, you know, Hey, you signed a contract that time's up. You're going to a different base. You're going to a different unit, whatever it is. Some guys, they're getting out of the military. Uh, but it all just because things get delayed because you're deployed, it all just comes to a head once you once you return home. And within that first six months, I mean, again, guys just scatter. So can you tell us a bit more about that disen, um, disenchantment? Um, you know, because like I said, I always want people to... Um, people to go out and get the book and read the book, motherfuckers. We're not doing all your work for you here, so you guys can go out, get the book, support Jeff. And um, but like, can can you just give, can you give us like a 
a gist of um, where that kind of dis- uh, disenchantment came from because I know this is not uh, Jeff Morris is not the only man in military history to become disenchanted with the military. Um, I'm <laughs> I'm a, a bit of a I'm in that boat myself. And um, how did that come kind of come about for you? Yeah, and I'll preface this with you know over time uh, some of that goes away and you're able to step back and look at things at a more holistic level. But for me, it's Kind of going back. So we, we talked about my first deployment, man. It was urban conflict. It was, you know, you, you had an enemy to shoot back at. Uh, it wasn't a whole lot of IEDs or snipers. You know, we went out, we did missions. Uh, it didn't feel like a, a peacekeeping mission by any stretch of the imagination. And, and look, I'm not here to be critical of, of you know, army strategy, whatever it is. I, ra- I raised my right hand and signed up and, you know, I was going to do what they told me to do. But when we got to that second deployment, uh, there were very few missions. Uh, it was 24 seven presence in sector split your unit up. You know, I had this 135 man infantry company, 15 Bradley fighting vehicles assigned to me. They gave me a tank platoon, you know, four M1 Abram tanks. And we rarely ever, you can probably count on one hand how many times we all went out together as a unit. It was usually splitting wow. platoons up just to ensure that in my AO, I had 24-7 presence in that sector to, you know, air quotes, mm-hmm. provide stability and safety to the locals. And, you know, and now I, I say that we were also in, you know, what, and I don't know, it's not a contest, but what I would say is probably the most heavily IED'd area in, in all of Baghdad at the time. Eastern Baghdad, up on the outskirts of Sadr City, uh, and then kind of just, I guess would be a little a little north of that, uh, north and east, into an area that hadn't seen American forces in, in years. And that's where a lot of the Iranian influence was coming in. They're from the east, EFPs, uh, definitely the most heavily EFP'd area in all of Iraq. You know, just from a mission standpoint, uh, to go and tell your men that, all right, instead of this, you know, one hour snatch and grab raid, we're going to do you know, like we did the first deployment. Now I want you to go out and drive around for eight hours in the most heavily EFP area in all of Baghdad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, that's a hard, uh, you know, that's a hard turd to polish, you know? And, yeah. and then in that, just a lot of things of, okay, we'll, we'll cut away from this. You know, we, we need to go and, uh, and do this joint mission with the Iraqi army and, and make sure you get a lot of pictures with it. And, huh. you know, in, in one case and, you know, and it's, it's, it's in the book and, and in, in the book, I don't do a whole lot of, uh, you know, I'm, uh, the book is not there to, to bash policy. That's, that's not what I'm about at all. Uh, but yeah, so I'm going to talk am. about it. So, you know, the day, for example, uh, you know, and I'm not giving anything away, uh, you know, I lost six men in one event, four were killed instantly and two died in the following days from their injuries. And we had been out all uh, awake the whole day before up all night going after this one target, one of the few times we did get to go do a raid and we're up all night. And when I request relief, requested relief from the mission the next day with the Iraqi army, I was told, no, we were obligated to have X amount of us soldiers out there with them. And so I had to take these guys that had been up all night. And after requesting, you know, over and over and over, uh, I was denied. And, you know, it was on the way back to go do that mission when the attack happened. And, and look, I'm not saying it wouldn't have happened anyways. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, who knows when you've been up for 36 straight hours, uh, maybe you're a little slow. So yeah, there was that man. It was, we were getting our ass handed to us, man. I was combat ineffective at one point. I had every Bradley assigned to me destroyed by EFPs. Uh, mm. you know, three of the, the M1 Abram tanks had been coded out and uh, all from EFPs. And, 
you know, so I, this guy has his general wanted to come visit my base and his aide came out, uh, who was this Lieutenant Colonel. And I had to do the brief before him. And basically my brief was, and I'm getting my ass handed to me up here. And, uh, he was like, you can't tell him that. I'm like, what? Sir, that's, that's the truth. And he was just like, you can't lay it out like that. You have to paint a more positive picture. And I was like, sir, I don't think that's what he wants to hear. I think he wants to hear the truth. And he's like, well, you better tell him something else. And I said, are you asking Jesus me to lie? Christ. And he said, I'm asking you to paint a better picture than that. And the general came. I gave the brief that I was getting my ass handed to me. And I could just <laughs> see the guys eyes uh, just steaming in the background. And the general could not have appreciated it more of just, you know, man, thanks for just so many guys. Yeah, I got, you know, a little talking to after that. You know, so and again, that's one guy. I don't want to paint with a broad brush. Great officers I served with. Great, you know, the, the command sergeant major for division. Now he came out and visited us. And that guy was a fucking stud, man. You know, came out and just was there for the men, knew what we were going through. Uh, yeah, it's a lot of things I'm kind of rambling on here, but it's just, you know, I, I'm having these families that I'm talking to and every one of them, when I talk to them, of the guys that I lost, you know, did my boy die a hero? And of course I told them yes, because uh, that's what they needed to hear at the time. But inside I'm thinking, the boy died because we were driving around for eight hours, making sure that, uh, so yeah, man, just all that stuff built up and it was just time for me to, to go do something else. No, man, I, I, I feel you on that one. Like, so when we were in Iraq at the same period, um, and I also felt this in Iraq, uh, Afghanistan, the same as I felt we were coloring in a map. Um, you know, it was about, well, we could, you know, someone can point to a map and say, we've got people in all these places, but when you're, t when you're strung out and like you're in, you know, you're in Bradley's and, and, um, tanks, you know, your, your strength is in, your strength is in the mobility. Your strength is in that firepower that you can bring together as a unit, not in being stagnant. And um, the way that, you know, the with the enemy in Afghanistan and Iraq, they, their, their ability to move seamlessly through civilian populations, like it does, you know, to, to tie yourself down into a multitude of different locations just gives them all the routes that you're going to have to take. You know, it, it just, it's... It seemed like it became very political in Iraq about the decision making from and this is I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. This is just what my my opinion was. I felt like a lot of these missions and stuff we were doing was I was like, this is this is people moving markers around on a map that makes sense when you're looking at a map. It doesn't make sense on the ground. Um, and and I, I have to say that um, I remember, dude, we did one operation because um, well, like, if you're going on a strike operation, you're going to get bad guys. And you, you, you know that there's a chance of you dying. You're willing to do that because you're like, right, this is warrior's work. I'm going out to do warrior's work right now. But then we did other operations where we covered vast amounts of ground to go and plant some fucking trees for a photo op for a brigadier. And like, you're like, we're at risk of EFPs all the way on this fucking route for someone to plant a fucking tree and take a photo. This isn't yep. like, <laughs> this isn't what we fucking signed up for. But like, you know what? Like, a, the result is the result. What do you think when it comes to like like the uh, the difference between offensive and defensive actions i mean you were you were a football player yeah. right you played played you played defense in football i bet your favorite i bet your favorite plays were fucking corner blitzes um and actually getting after the you know like playing um aggressive defense right so how did you feel like you know did, what did you feel like the mental kind of toll was on your men about feeling like you were on yeah, the it back was tough foot and again having gone through what we did it was very offensive in nature of uh, you know, our first deployment. And then 
you know, switching over that second deployment, you're right. I mean, it was very much uh, a defensive posture, and you know, it was, and it was a, uh, it was a tough pill uh, to sell to the boys when we get over there. Because again, you know, half that group had we had all been together that first deployment, and mm. you know, to try to take these guys and, and during our our train up uh, leading up to that deployment, you know, man, my NCOs who were just studs, you know, those guys, man, just extra mile pushing the new young soldiers so hard of this is what it's going to be like this is what it's going to be like this is what we got to do uh you know clearing rooms uh, mm. uh, urban just you name it urban mouth stuff and then to go over there and just have this it's like you know getting a uh, spending all this time and effort for a military working dog and then training it up and then going and put it in a suburban house and just say you know, hey, just stand guard. You know, now that's not the best example because the suburbs are safe and we weren't, uh, but we weren't able to release what, uh, you know, the military is not a police force. And, you know, we are designed, I was having this conversation with somebody the other day, uh, you know, we are designed to go in and, you know, destroy things and kill bad guys and win and get out. And I understand, you know, the, the world's changing and, you know, conventional military, uh, uh, you know, it's it's a it's a huge aircraft carrier, man. It moves slow, uh, and, and that's what the mission dictated at the time. So that's what we were going to do. I just don't know if we were a trained to the best of that ability. Uh, but even taking this, the mindset piece of that, it just completely, maybe not completely, but it is counterintuitive uh, to what a lot of the men had signed up for and what their expectation of being an infantryman in the army was all about. Yeah, I I, I feel the same way, man. I feel like. Uh... At the very least, you got to let the guys get off the leash now and again. you got to give them, like, if, if you want them to do that, like, I get it. But then you've got it, like, if, you know, these people are in, people are in the ops rooms pushing the markers around, you've got to give them some things to get their teeth after the enemy. Because otherwise, you're basically, you're asking someone to walk around the boxing ring blindfolded, and every now and again, someone's going to come in and punch you in the face. Uh, but you never get your blindfold taken off, and you never get your gloves put on to be able to, like, hit back. You know, and it's like, it's a lot to ask for someone to get hit a few times and not hit back, but to like, and I, and I, and it's not the same thing. It's like, if you get contacted and fire back, that's not the same thing as you going out and pulling someone out of their bed in the middle right. of the night, you know, when they like this, it's not the same thing at all. And like, how long were you guys ago? We're talking like, what, like 12 months, 13 months? Something? Oh, the second one was uh 15 months. We were part of the surge. Yeah, so right when we got there in October of 06, so we already knew we were going to miss one Thanksgiving and one Christmas. And then a few weeks after being there is when they announced uh, the surge was going to happen in early 07. But that meant that uh, our 12-month deployment was now going to be a 15-month deployment. And so, yeah, so then we knew we were going to miss two Thanksgivings and and two Christmases. And and look, I do just want to say this, you know, it seems like you know, I'm being critical of a lot of things. Uh, I, I can't have it both ways. I can't sit around and talk about this incredible group of men that I had the privilege of leading and all these incredible experiences that we went through together and just how these guys were studs and, and all this and all that uh, without saying that, yes, the mission changed. And yes, mm-hmm. you got to be able to let the guys off the leash. But guess what? That's our job. That was my job as a leader and my NCOs, their jobs as leaders uh, we may not have liked it, but that was our job. And, mm-hmm. you know, so you, you can't have it both ways. You can't say, oh, we were great. We did all this and that. But as soon as the mission turned to something we didn't want, then <laughs> oh, this sucks, man. This is fucking bullshit. We can't do this. You know, you can't have it both ways. Now, I'm just saying it was a tough adjustment. Uh, 
I failed in many ways. Uh, my first sergeant, who's one of my best friends in the world. I mean, he was one of the best men in my wedding. Uh, just the guy is a fucking legend, man. Uh, the only time, I mean, we, we just had a screaming match at each other over something that was going on one time. And, you know, and it was the only time it happened. And but we got through it. And we were able to kind of come to a common ground, not me pulling rank or him pulling experience. You know, we came to a common ground and over time we got the men on board. So I just want to say it's, it's the leader's job, even though you may not like the mission, uh, the mission still got to get done. And it's our way to figure out the best way to do it. Yeah, 100%. Um, to, to, um, to drill down on that, as an officer for anybody listening who is in a leadership role, how do you uh, like, what were your kind, do you have golden rules for how to, um, how to handle your relationship with your NCOs? You know, my, uh, I don't know. I had a couple of little, you call them my leadership tenants. And, you know, one of them was, you know, the only thing I'm consistent in is that I treat each one of you differently. Uh, now, <laughs> you know, my, my foundation and my moral code is, is uncompromising. Uh, but, you know, people are different, man. And some people are motivated, you know, by money. Some people are motivated by, by status. Some people are quiet. Some people are outspoken. You know, so it was my job to, you know, to go and sit there and have, all right, you know, my, I call it my extended leadership team. You know, usually company commanders, they're going to plan a mission. They would bring in their three platoon leader lieutenants and maybe the fire support officer. And let's use all our officer doctrine and come up with something cool. And what we thought was a good plan by the book. And, you know, me, I'm like, man, I got this freaking company full of stud E6s and E7s who have, have been through the same shit I have. I better bring them in and get their perspective on this. Uh, but again, each one of them had, had their own thoughts. And so, you know, it's it was easier for me to kind of adjust personality-wise to them than to expect, you know, my extended leadership team of 20 to all adjust to me. And now we would plan things. And the, the one thing I would say is everyone, and if you talk to them now, I, I'm pretty confident they would all say the same thing is that they all knew they had a voice. And if we would go and plan a mission, it was, you know, or even in training, you know, everybody got a vote and their vote counted one. And I got one vote and it counted 21 if I had to, you know, you always got to have the, the buck stops here somewhere. Uh, but more often than not, look, I'm a smart enough guy <laughs> to realize I'm surrounded around all this experience. So uh, very few times, uh, I don't think if ever did I ever pull that that Trump vote, it was usually uh, kind of a collective, uh, collective group or ideas uh, from all the all the men. That that's great advice as well to treat everybody differently because like there are some people out there who um, some people need fucking like some some people need the tough love, uh, and there's other guys that if you shout at them once and and they feel like you've demeaned them like being demeaning to them, they'll never work for you again. You know, it's there. There really isn't a one, one size fits all. No, there isn't. And you know, it just again, you got to be fair. Uh, I mean, God, two of my E sixes who are both still uh, hell. I'll say their names: Sergeant Jeffers and Sergeant Hurd. You know exactly what I'm talking about. They got super pissed off about something, and you know, showed up <laughs> drunk one day, one morning, just to make a point. And you know, half of me laughed my ass off at it. Uh, you know, but I, I couldn't just because. These guys were two of my favorites. Uh, didn't mean that I couldn't, we couldn't drop the hammer, not by me. It's me and my first sergeant, you know, not just me. You know, we couldn't not drop the hammer on them just because of who they were uh, and what they had done before. Yeah. So it was, it was fair, fairness, consistency, and, you know, just the same expe expectation of all of them. So you, did you, um, 
did you have like mentors that you learned through either through books or through in person like that you that you try to take a leadership style from yeah i think he's kind of you know some of it i think it's just inherent sort of who you are and then coming to terms with that i think a lot of it started on the football field back in college you know as i got a little bit older and up to my senior year you know was one of the leaders on the team but i was never the rah rah let me go give this motivational speak type deal it was more uh lead through example in my actions and show me, don't tell me mm. type deal. But, uh, you know, at the same time, you know, don't mistake my kindness for my weakness type deal either. Uh, the company commander. So when I was a platoon leader, my company commander was this guy, Jason Bennett. And, and he was just great. He, he really set an example for me of, you know, sometimes, uh, it's our job as leader. There was one case. So the first kill we got, for example, uh, we came back to base and we had shot up at the top of this building and me and my gunner were all fired up and everybody's high five. And we get back to the base and he pulls me aside, shakes my hands. says, good job. He said, now come in here. I want you to look at the map and with the map and realize that the direction we had shot, if we were shooting up, if we would have missed, we would have been shooting back towards our base. Mm. You don't think about that. You're like, oh, it's miles away, you know, but, uh, so he really kind of helped put the big picture, uh, from a leadership standpoint of, you know, it's, it's not what's in front of you. It's also what's ahead of you and try to think two, three steps at a time uh, ahead, I should say. And then the next guy, when I was an XO, then the guy that I took command over was this guy, Chris Ford. And, you know, Chris is just the epitome of, I mean, if you, someone put a picture of an officer, you know, in a, in a, in a dictionary, it'd be Chris, man, just tall, you know, rugged dude men loved him uh, could walk the walk talk the talk uh and just he kind of helped set the example for me of just what that command presence was all about and how it didn't have to be bravado or you know run and do something stupid it was be tactically strong know everything you know as well as the, the saw gunner and the team and third platoon knew it uh but it's not your job to be the saw gunner it's your job to make sure that that saw gunner, you know, the kid who may not have graduated high school, he knew why what he was doing on that day, guarding that alley, why it was important to the overall mission. Uh, so, yeah, I was very fortunate to be surrounded by, you know, those two guys in particular that really helped kind of bring the whole package together. I hope at least what I tried to do. I'm not saying I was successful. For somebody that's like, let's say someone's coming fresh out of Sanders now, which is like, you know, like the West Point. Uh, or somebody that's you know going into like those leadership positions for the first day what would your actions be as the first uh, on the first day if you're taking over a platoon for the first time what would you what would you your kind of actions be to start the relationship off on the right foot be the best damn listener in the platoon so often people get put in leadership roles and think they have to stand up in front of a group of men or women whether it's in the army or whether it's in corporate America where I'm at now. And they think because they have this title that they're supposed to have all the answers. Mm. And in fact, in my experience, uh, the most common trait of all the great leaders that I've been around is their ability to listen. Because again, back to what I said earlier, very few people have all the answers. Uh, but great leaders are exceptional about surrounding themselves with people uh, who have answers and ideas to a lot of different things. And their ability to listen helps take that collective group of thoughts and ideas and bring them together for a powerful economy of force and one thing moving forward. So listen. Yeah, I do. I think that's a great point. It's one of the problems I think, you know, without going too much for political rant is that 
we we have this weird we have this weird thing going on now in the world where it's like it's a bad thing for someone to go back on an old opinion that they had. It's like, well, that, how is that? You know, how is that bad? Like, it's yeah. it's good to admit that you were, to admit that you're wrong is is a great thing. No, no doubt. I mean, heck, take a look. Smoking, for example, yeah. you know, <laughs> sixty years ago, like, dude, that was the thing. You know, you had you know, presidents and people on TV lighting one up. You know, and so it, it's okay for something yeah. like that to come back and say, hey, we've learned, you know, new evidence or. or New data is out there that has shown that, hey, guess what? This shit isn't good. Uh, but for whatever reason, if it's a political thought or uh, I got a buddy I work out with and we have a lot of discussions, you know, out in my garage about different things. And it's great because we can banter back and forth and, you know, listen to understand and not listen to respond and actually help kind of shape each other's thoughts on events that are going on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's look, we're not there, you know, trying to you know, be some political talk show, but I just enjoy and appreciate when you can be around uh, other people like that, not people that have drawn a line in the sand and are unwilling to budge an inch from that just because they think it'll show some kind of weakness or uh, lack of belief in their cause. Yeah. That smoking one's a great analogy, dude, because like the equivalent of that in politics would be that they go, oh, uh, cigarettes are bad. Right. Well, I'm going to smoke two packets a day now. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that would be like, that's a, that's a really good one. I um, I, I, I like that. Um, do you think that your ability to list, like that, that ability to listen, do you think that that came from the military then? Do you think that that's kind of like, um, do you think that that's one of the benefits of, of the service? Oh, no doubt. Yes. I, I think I'd always been one to kind of sit just naturally. I kind of like to sit and understand things uh, before I spoke up as much. Uh, but it, it, that didn't really completely cultivate and make sense to me and, and shape me into who I am today had it not been for those experiences in the army. So, okay, let's get back to um, your your kind of homecoming there. Something that was interesting because I've never, you know, I've come back from deployments, but I've never come back to, um, you know, like a, a wife and, and kids and stuff. What's it like coming back and living with people who are obviously you're kind of like, so you're so close to in some ways, but then there must be so much distance in other ways that they haven't. Not only have you not, oh, sorry, not only have they not experienced what you have, but they've been living a life separate to you. It's not like they hit pause when you went away. So, I don't know what 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 was that like? Yeah, man, we'll start. There's kind of two two fronts to that, and, and one is the is the kid factor. So, um, my oldest son, we were talking about. You know, you read about him in the book. He's about to turn 14. Well, that second deployment, I left, and he was three months old. And I came home to this 18-month-old toddler. Now I came home for leave, you know, in the middle of deployment, so on for a few weeks. Uh, but it's like, okay, now that he's 18 months, I'm going to be a father now and, and learn how to be a father. Uh, mm. You know, you would show up on the parade field that day, uh, you know, and I come walking up to my family and, you know, she goes to hand him to me and he starts crying. He doesn't know who I am. And, you know, so it's, it's, that was, uh, that, that was tough. And, you know, you think you're supposed to have all the answers. And uh, I think I was smart enough to, to say, I, I know I don't. I mean, this child doesn't know who I am. And so it's my job just to not interrupt the routine, but start interjecting myself into that routine. So I become a part of it. You know, on the the marriage piece, you know, we mentioned earlier, uh, the marriage was on the rocks coming home and had talked about not even uh, just basically me come home spend 30 days at home to get to know him a little bit and then kind of go our separate ways. But we agreed to try to make it work for a little bit. And I think in hindsight, we would both tell you neither one of us 
work too hard. We just came back and got into the rut and said, all right, we're going to do this for the kid. But yeah, a lot of that, man, it was just, just separate lives. You know, I, she couldn't comprehend or have any kind of, you know, context of what I was going through. I could tell her about these things, but it's, it's a movie to her. And, you know, and from my standpoint, mm. I, you know, no one dreams of becoming a parent and then being by yourself 15 of the first 18 months dealing with this child. Uh, and, you know, in her eyes, it was, well, now that you're back, you can put all that behind. You should be so happy to have us and this. How can you not put that behind? Mm. You know, and in my eyes, I'm like, how can you not understand all the shit that I just went through and I can't just flip the switch and all of a sudden make all that stuff go away? Yes, I'm happy to be back. So it's, you know, again, when I say neither one of us made, you know, much of an effort, uh, it was just quite obvious that uh, we were going to be much better uh, co-parents uh, than we were husband and wife. And, you know, it, it's easy to say that. Now, how do you do it? And so, yeah, we came back and drug on, drug on far too long. So, yeah, the homecoming outside of, you know, seeing the boy was, uh, you know, not something that you see in a movie, man. It was, uh, I came home into a pretty dark place. So when you say you weren't, you weren't kind of um, trying was that because it was it felt too hard to really explain what you were feeling or you know what what was it that was kind of holding you back I think the uh, back to that coldness I mentioned earlier and I in this sound that I'm not trying to like over over hype it with any kind of hyperbole or anything but like I just didn't care about really anything uh, outside of my son and my love for him, uh, th- there was nothing that I, I, I was excited about or looked forward to. I, yeah, I came back, started interviewing to get a job. You know, that's what I got to do. I got to pay the bills when I get out. I wasn't excited about it. Uh, it was a way to make a job. I came back and like, all right, let me find a job where I can hopefully make a lot of money and do whatever the hell I want and love my son. And now, if I'm going to make this money, what do I want to? what do I want to do? I was like, I remember crazy ideas. Like nothing's going to replicate that rush of combat. And someone said, Oh, you should pick up golfing. And I'm like, well, Hey, I already, I already got a golf, the golfing damn sure. Mm-hmm. Isn't going to, isn't going to replace that. Uh, so yeah, man, it was just, I just didn't care. Uh, when I tell people I, I was a dark place, uh, I didn't want to meet people. I didn't want to go out. I didn't want to spend time. I didn't want to put any, you know, forth any effort with the marriage. Uh, it was just, let me love my boy and nothing else really matters. Did you feel like the, you were, were you, what were you kind of like energy levels like? Cause like, um, cause I think that can be separate to not caring. You know, it's like, sometimes you might just like, you might just feel like you would care if you had energy, you know, is it like, were you just, were you, did you have energy or it's just a case you didn't want to use it? You know, I did. I mean, I, I mastered the art of being the biggest hypocrite, uh, Cause I would have similar conversations with my men. They're like, God, you know, sir, I'm gaining weight, you know, because a lot of guys were having problems when we came back, you know, we had first suicides, you know, within that first year. But to me, you know, I mean, I got up and I went and worked out and I stayed in shape and I got the good job and nine to five, I put the act on, but I didn't care. It was just an act, man. And guys would call me and I would say all the right things, uh, you know, Hey, open up, talk about it. Let's, you know, we'll get through this together. Uh, the fact of the matter is I did none of those things myself. So I, to answer your question, I had energy. I think it was fake energy. I mean, if you can say that, it sounds kind of silly to say, but, you know, like mm-hmm. I'm going to the gym just to say I went to the gym and uh, I didn't get the same satisfaction that I used to go and, and stay in shape. Uh, I just, I did it just because it was another block I was supposed to check. 
a box I was supposed to check. I'm interested in like knowing a bit more about this. It's very interesting. And, and we don't I think we've ever had a guest on who's been in your position like this before. When you're telling the guys, they're like, hey boss, um, you know, I'm struggling, I'm getting I'm gaining weight, I'm having nightmares. And you're giving them advice. Do you believe the advice that you're giving them, or you're, or you're like, oh, I need to give this guy like a placebo? Like, what? How was that kind of a? How was that ad- interaction kind of going down? I, I think I believed it. Uh, not I think I know I believed it because, uh, yeah, I, I just it's so easy. Uh, you know this, man. We are all masters at, at telling other people what they should do. But then to turn around and apply that to ourselves uh, is hard. And so I can say, you know, the guy calls me from his truck in the woods with a gun in his hand, you know, talk me out of it, sir. Why should I do this? And yeah, I, I'm, I'm great in that environment and can be there for him. And now when I hang up the phone with him and I have memories of that incident in the mirror uh, and, you know, dude, I, I, I kept shaving my head. I shaved my head. I brushed my teeth in the shower so I wouldn't have to look into a mirror. Cause I didn't see me. I saw that image and I heard that sound that that guy had made. Uh, so again, coming back. Yeah. I believe the hell out of it when I would tell those other guys, cause I wanted them to do it. I wanted to see them heal. Uh, but I literally and figuratively couldn't look at myself in the mirror and apply those same lessons and advice to myself. Yeah. Do you, um, do you feel that it's harder for leaders to come forward for, uh, and admit weakness because you feel like if you're in doing so you are letting down your man? I think early on, that's sort of just the natural thought you go to. Then there's always the thought of, look, you know, part of it as the leader, you know, maybe when I was a platoon leader, I was out there on the front lines, you know, driving in the lead vehicle, you know, when that other deployment, you know, my job was kind of be in the middle, the command and control guy. And I I missed being up front and going and doing that stuff, but that wasn't my job. And so, yeah, there's a certain part of it of, man, how can I, you know, I, I wasn't up front with them. I wasn't in that lead vehicle that got hit by the EFP. I wasn't on the mission that day when those guys were killed. So you almost feel a little bit of guilt. Uh, and now the difference that I think leaders have is you have that that's never going to go away. Of I made decisions and people lost their life because of that. Now you can be objective and realize and step back and say, well, man, I've made you know, 99 other decisions that day and probably end up, you know, probably help save somebody's ass, but we only think about the one that went bad. Uh, so yeah, I think leaders, uh, struggle to admit that. And, and plus two, you want to stay in that command mode. You want to be there for your men. Uh, but as time goes on and in hindsight, you know, I realized that, uh, you know, the leader has to be healed, uh, before he can help heal others. It's such a human thing, isn't it, to concentrate on that one flaw, that one, or not even a flaw, that one thing. I don't even want to say mistake because one of the things that we do as soldiers is we give ourselves too much credit in one way in thinking that we could be perfect. Because so we, cause we never say, oh, it just happened. We always say, oh, I'm what that mistake that led to such and such, as if, as if that like it was possible. Some things just aren't avoidable in war, unfortunately. Um, but like in life in general, as humans, we always like, we tend to dwell on that one person that gave us criticism rather than the 99 that gave us praise or the one relation or the one bad date we had rather than the 99 that went, well, well, maybe, maybe some of the listeners haven't had 99 dates, got a bush, (laughs) step up your game boys. But, um, you know, like we, we have that, we have that tendency, don't we? But then the problem with combat obviously is that. You know that's it is it the it's if something goes bad it goes so fucking badly. Um, it's very hard for for us to give ourselves the credit that we're due, and I'm sure you you know that's probably how you were kind of um, you were feeling about it too. 
how how did you get past that then? How did you get past the point of looking at this is like how did you get past the point of looking and and shifting your focus to the good work that you've done, the the good decisions that you made? As time went on, I mean, there were spurts, you know, where I would realize I'd go out. I always say like the the exception became the norm. So the norm for me was the outgoing guy have fun, life of the party, stand up for those who can't stand up for themselves, you know, and everybody has a bad day. And that was the exception. Mm -hmm. And then when I came back, it didn't happen overnight, but kind of the shitty days, not caring about anything. That was, that became the norm. But every now and then I'd go out and do something fun or meet somebody, you know, and I moved to Tyler. I'm like, Oh, that was fun. And and kind of let that spark again. So I kind of knew that, you know, man, I'm, I need to do something to get me back to being me. Now, what the hell is that going to be? Uh, so this drug on, man, for almost five years. And uh, so I went back to Florida to see my mom and stepdad and two of my brothers. And and feel free to give me all the shit you want. I'm a 45-year-old man, and all you guys will appreciate it listening. And I'm always going to be my mom's baby. <laughs> <laughs> my mom had this phrase growing up, and it was, my baby's big blue eyes. They're just the light of my life. And Whenever I'm down or sad, I just look at them and I know that everything's going to be okay. I'm something she had always said. And so that night, uh, we had dinner and sitting on the couch having a beer and she just started crying. And I thought she had some bad health news or something to tell me. And then uh, when she got herself together, she just said, you know, it's gone. It's like, what? She's like, the light's gone. And, you know, when I look at my baby's big blue eyes, I don't see the light anymore. I see that he looks dead inside. And it just breaks my heart that there's nothing I can do to help him. And it's something he's going to have to figure out on his own. But, uh, yeah, son, for the first time in my life, I don't know if everything's going to be okay with you. And, uh, yeah, man, that hit me like a ton of bricks, uh, you know, raised by a single mom, first part of my life. And if you read the book, you'll get it into a lot of how much she shaped and molded who I am. Uh, so yeah, man, that sort of became the catalyst. And so I took my own advice and I came back and I, I started going to talk to somebody and opening up about things and sharing these experiences and the survivor's guilt and, you know, the marriage that fell apart and all these things. And, uh, yeah, man, it was the best decision I ever made. Dude, one of the things that I picked up on in the book was that the therapist you went to see or counselor was that they, they said that you're going to have to learn to live with this. And I like that because well, I know you liked it too, because obviously it worked for you. It's, um, it's a difference between, I think one of the things that could piss veterans off is when someone's like, oh, everything's sunshine and roses and yeah, no, no, don't worry about your, your dead friends and stuff. It'll be great. That's very different to saying, hey, you know what? The fucking sucks and it's always going to suck and that's always going to cause fucking tears and painful memories, but you're going to have to live with it. That's very different to being like, oh, don't worry about it, man. We'll just fucking put some daisies in her hair. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, and that's exactly what he did, man. In fact, I told him, you know, that horrible thing that happened to me that one day and you know, he got done and just looked at me and he goes, wow, <laughs> that's messed up, Jeff. Yeah. I don't think Hollywood could make something like that up. You know, and like, yeah, I was like, that's not what you're expecting. And I'm like, no shit. I <laughs> Thanks for validating what I already know, man. But yeah, but then he just went into, uh, you know, everything you just named off. That stuff's not going away. That stuff is forever a part of who I am. But instead what I have done and what a lot of veterans, you know, you, you have these, thoughts and memories and images and you think that if people find out about it uh that they're going to paint you with some scarlet letter and like oh man that dude's fucking jacked up and you know stay away from him he's going to snap any day now you know uh accept it uh you know and he asked me if i accepted it and mm. i 
didn't think I had. And he said, well, you know, we can't deal with things unless they're real and things aren't real until we accept them. And once you accept this, this thing will always be a part of who you are. Then every day of your life, you and you alone have the ability to make the choice of how you're going to live with that. And you can either choose to focus on the burden that those experiences brought about uh, or the privilege of all the things associated with that uh, and to be able to be a part of that brotherhood and serve your country and all the privileges that came with it. And uh, he's like, that's what I can't help you with. You have to make that choice every day. Uh, and it was just so impactful to me. Dude, I think it's you that you said that the accepting, there's two, there's two stages to the accepting. There's accepting that, um, first of all, that there's an issue. You have to accept that. And then the other thing you then have to accept is that you have the capability of then changing how you deal with it. Because some people can accept that there's a problem, but they can't accept that they have the solution. Exactly. You know, it's those two things. You, there's those two stages of acceptance. Both of them are absolutely crucial. Uh, before we go on to how you kind of dealt with that, one of the things that... Um, I picked up on in the book was the you were in the Denver you were in Denver airport and someone went by playing bagpipes I don't I have no idea what the fuck was going on there um, <laughs> you know bagpipes in an airport pretty weird um, but I also have a bit of a reaction to hearing bagpipes because for anyone that was in Camp Bastion for a time in Afghanistan in 2009 we'll have the same thing um, it's something that you play at the vigil I know you guys play it at your services too and um, it it brings back a hell of a reaction. Do you um, like what? What was your kind of relationship to music like before and after your deployment? Yeah, it's, music had always. Uh, now, now I'll preface this with: uh, I probably have the worst singing voice of anyone you've ever heard in your life. <laughs> I can't play a damn instrument. <laughs> I have no musical talents whatsoever of any kind. But I've always loved music. You know. College, I'd you know listen to all my. Uh, I love death metal music, man. And, you know, listen to all that stuff to get hyped up for games. Uh, deployment, same thing before missions, you know. But then afterwards, the wind down. Uh, yeah, especially afterwards, of you know, melody can bring back a memory that old country song, and there were just so many songs that would take me back to all those experiences over the multiple deployments. But yeah, bagpipes was just always the. And you're right, man. That shit in the Denver airport was crazy. They, they say there's all kind of weird stuff about the Denver airport. If you haven't heard, Google it. There's all these things with being haunted. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was like this busy airport. And one day, it's like there was barely anybody in the terminal. And I'm just sitting around having a drink. And again, these were kind of during the dark times. And I look up and there's some dude in a freak kilt walking down the, <laughs> the middle of the thing. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, almost like, it's yeah, it was nuts, man. Uh, absolutely crazy dude I've, I've haunted that airport myself a few times on the way back from visiting my mate Alex shout out to Alex listen to this <laughs> it's definitely not a full human being who's who's going through those yeah. passages I do I actually had a, a weird experience in Denver airport once too I was like I was sitting there looking at my I was sitting there looking at my phone bear in mind I'm from the UK I'm in Denver I'm looking at my phone and I see one of my friends Instagram stories and I was like hang on that looks familiar and I looked up and I was looking at the same thing as I was looking at my story. He'd walked by me. Another friend from the UK had walked by me, but I hadn't seen him because I was looking at my fucking phone. Yeah. That was a, that was a weird one. Um, the one with the music, dude, one of the things that made me think about was um, I've been like, so in reading your book and listening to the audio book of another guest we have on who's an Iraq veteran, um, I came across some uh, Linkin Park on my uh, phone the other day and like that just took me right back to Iraq. 
Yep. And um, it, it it really like it just put really just fucking pulled up some memories. Like I don't smells music these things I, I, and it can be a great thing but i think it's something i think the reason i brought this up was i want people to be aware of be aware of what can trigger you and i know this sounds like such a fucking snowflake generation thing but it's true like i i listened to i should not have gone and listened to linkin park this morning before when my mum was asking me questions about you know because my mum was trying to make plans for the week and stuff that was not the right time for me to go listening to linkin park that puts me right back in iraq you know, not, not that anything happened, but I had to, you know, I had to put game face on, basically. Yeah. Um. So, you know, we, we really need to be careful as people. Like, um, I know, like, for instance, um, you know, if you've ever been, people have ever been to a funeral of a friend who's died before the time, the songs from those funerals can bring back things. It's very, very kind of, very kind of powerful. It's something we need to understand that music's power over us so that we don't go putting ourselves into into bad positions but going on about putting ourselves into good positions um you found one of the kind of the antidotes to um the uh, the antidotes to because it sounds like you're in depression yeah. real big time with like you know like depression and one of the big cures to depression or at least an antidote to it is um is fitness. Mm-hmm. So can you talk us through your your journey into um into crossfit? Yeah so the counselor we mentioned earlier, uh, I had left Colorado and moved to Tyler, Texas, uh, to be closer to my son. who was in Austin. And when I got there, I started doing CrossFit and I, you know, I met some people there and hung out, but I wasn't a part of the little CrossFit clique they had, but at least it gave me people. They'd invite me to barbecues on the weekends. And so the counselor had encouraged me to share, uh, this stuff with people outside of the military. Cause I was your typical guy. I hadn't talked about it with anybody unless you were there with me. Mm. And so one Saturday night, uh, the crew, there's probably like 10 of them, uh, five couples and, and me. And I said, all right, well, tonight, I guess going to be the night. And, and they knew, I mean, they all knew I was in the military and they knew something. I got a bunch of tattoos and memorials of the men or events I'd been through. Uh, but, you know, they never asked out of respect. And so, yeah, man, that night I just started mm-hmm. talking and, uh, you know, a little liquid courage took me a, a beer or, or eight to get the courage up to start. <laughs> and, uh, man, I just let it out and probably talked for over an hour and, uh, you know, man, dudes, you know, wives in there crying as we're going through stuff. And yeah, man, we got done and, uh, big dude just walked over and gave me a hug. He was crying and, uh, you know, just, and it was like, they're crying because they, they hurt for me, not because they're scared of me. Like I, all this thing mm-hmm. I envisioned, so one of the guys said, well, man, and I had referenced the men and called them the Legion 8 while I was talking about it. And he said, well, man, why don't we come up with a hero wad and let's call it Legion 8. And so. So what is a, sorry. Yeah. Wad is a workout of the day and hero wads are for military members or first responders that have been killed in the line of duty. And so there's all these hero wads uh, that you can do in CrossFit. So we put our drunken minds together and you know, <laughs> midnight on a Saturday night. Yeah. And came up with this ridiculously hard workout. And we were going to get together, you know, one Sunday afternoon, a few weeks after that, just that core group of us and kind of do it as a healing thing for, for me and take some pictures and send it to, some, to the families and some of the men. And the owners of the gym got wind of it and asked if we could make a Saturday morning event out of it. If I would get up and share some words, they were pretty moved by the story. 
so yeah, we just did our uh, Legion Eight event, and, you know, July twenty first, uh, July twenty second, with twenty first, two thousand twelve. Uh, we were in Tyler at Premier CrossFit, and man, you know, sixty people showed up. Uh, somebody told the news about it. They came out, and uh, I made this video of the men. And you talk about music; it's just this really haunting song. And the pictures of the men are all pictures that the family members gave me. Uh, you know, they not just as a soldier, but as a son, a husband, a father, a brother, a fiance, friend, and played that video. And it was just very moving to a lot of people. And, you know, so then it was, all right, we're going to do this next year, aren't we? And then the next year, more places did it. The next year, more gyms got wind of it. And so many places started doing it that I couldn't make it all to talk and give the presentation. Uh, and so after a few years, that's when we decided to go the nonprofit route, uh, you know, before we had just sold t-shirts to kind of help pay for some of the family members that wanted to come be a part of it. Uh, but we had enough people that believed kind of in the message of, of acceptance uh, and, and choice and, and doing this thing and honor these men and their families. Uh, so we went the nonprofit route and have just continued to, to grow and scale it ever since. So, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a very huge and impactful part of my life. Bro, it was an impactful part of my life, too, because reading that uh, chapter, I was fucking bawling. Um, it was like, I'd be like, all right, there we go. I've had the tears now. And then I read another part in the chapter. I'm like, oh, here we go again. <laughs> um, you know, it was, it was, but it's beautiful. It was beautiful. Yeah. Well, you get up and you talk and, and I think I know what you're getting at there is, you know, and I, I share the story and I'm very open, man. I, the next time I do one of these things and don't cry in front of a crowd, then that'll be the first time it happens. <laughs> you know, and I think what that causes is, look, man, at the end of the day, everybody's got shit everybody's got a story and you know we're all veterans of life and tragedy and trauma they don't discriminate and ptsd is not exclusive to the military and so we do these events and these people get up and they you know they hear me talk and then you know one of the moms will get up and talk and you know and they they look at it and they say like man if he can do it if she can do it so can i and so it causes them to open up and they come up and they share the the darkest worst moments of their life and how they've struggled to accept these things and how this message uh, really resonated with them. So just to see the impact that it's had on so many walks of life outside of the veteran community uh, is one of the things that just compels me to want to continue to grow uh, this message. Yeah, dude, I, there's um, a really kind of, of a real fitting tribute. And um, because it's one thing remembering, and obviously that's something we should do, that goes without saying. But then when you can actually take take a tragedy and then find some good to you know to do from it not just once but continuously inspire other people get other people to to like because uh, well, i don't want to give away every story in the book but there's a basically the idea like sorry not the the idea of the story there was um you know a guy in there who was going through his other uh, civilian who's going through his own struggles in life and it gave him the strength to go through it and you know, at the end of the day, isn't that what we, you know, that's what being a soldier is all about, right? Is protecting other people, serving other people and, um, you know, making your loss so that other people can have a better life. Yeah, no doubt. And it's brought back that, uh, you know, back to I'm a 45 year old man, you know, my days of running around, you know, the streets of Baghdad are over. Uh, but even though me and my, me and one of the moms of the guys I lost, uh, Sergeant Green's mom, Linda Kagan. I say like, you know, we didn't ask for this platform, but life gave it to us. So what are we going to do with it? And so this platform gives me and us another opportunity to serve in a different capacity. And what better way to honor 
you know, all the family members, when they look, they all said the same thing. I don't want my, my boy's name to be forgotten. And as long as we continue to do this every year, we do the shirts every year, the shirts have their boy's name on it. Uh, you know, it's always come back, man. You know, we, everybody makes that promise, but we've kept it. And so what better way to honor the men than to continue to grow and scale their, their memory. And you've done that with the book too. Um, I'm sure as you know, it was for me, I'm sure it was for you and every other man who've served that writes a book is one of like, it's, it's a great feeling to know that when we're dead, those names are going to be living on in a book, right? Yep. Yep. Like, so what, what was the motivation behind, um, the behind behind putting the book out how did that kind of come how did that come about people had been on me for years to do it i had a reporter in my first deployment who was with me this back in 2005 and he thought the idea of the guy that left the the good corporate job to go join the military after 911 would maybe be a good story one day and just told me it's something i should think about but then all this shit happened man i just wanted to forget it and as legion 8 started to grow over those years uh 2013, 14, 15, more and more people, you know, kept talking about it. And I wanted to do it, but I think I was scared to do it because if I did it, I wanted it to be, and hopefully you've read it, hopefully we was able to get that across is I wanted it to be raw. Oh, it is. I wanted it to be real. The, you know, I've read enough books and you can kind of, and they probably held back that last 10% of just the shit. And I didn't want to hold that back. Uh, but to do that meant that I was going to be reliving the worst day of so many people's lives, uh, the men that were there and the families. And who am I to, you know, light that match again, uh, to bring back those memories and to put it out there for the whole world to see. Um, you see, there's some very graphic stuff in there. Uh, and so I, I really struggled with that. And then it was actually the families, the ones that really encouraged me. And it was after a Legion 8 event, end of 2000 uh 17 and linda kagan who i mentioned earlier and you got to know this lady man she's awesome and she pulled me out on the back porch of the people's house we were at and just sat me down and looked at me and i was like yes ma'am she's like jeff write the fucking book <laughs> <laughs> so i started it right after that yeah. so there you go yeah and the response from the families has just uh and from the men uh you know, it's, it's been, uh, it's been humbling. Dude, it's not an exaggeration to say, and I say this because I read fucking books from thousands of years ago. I can get my tech, like if I can get my hands on a text from 2000 years ago and I'm doing my research, I will. The people will be reading their names in a thousands of years time. Like, yeah. I think that's fucking incredible. Like that's, it's, you know, it's, it, I, I think it's, um, it's natural to not want to put yourself in that position because, um, you, cause like what you were saying, I really struggled calling me there. It's, it's the families. But I found the same thing myself is that the families were the most supportive about doing it. Yeah. So anyone listening out there, that's, anyone else that's listening and thinking, I don't want to do it because I don't want people to feel like I'm taking advantage of dead, dead or whatever. I'm telling you right now, for me and Jeff, the families are the people who want, obviously run it by the families, but they will, they, I get, they will want their sort of the sons and daughters remembered. That's, who wouldn't, you know? And that, my friend, is a promise kept. That we talked about earlier. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, mate. Uh, before you go, mate, I want to get because I know CrossFit. Um, I'll be honest, CrossFit is not my thing. I like a good old fashioned Arnold Schwarzenegger arms workout on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Sunday. <laughs> so unless the wads are going to be bicep kills and tricep pushdowns, I'm not getting into it. But I do think that fitness and CrossFit is fantastic for community spirit, as we've seen quite clearly from your story. Community spirit. 
um, you know, let alone the physical side of things that can help the mental side. What do you, how do you feel about what's going on in the CrossFit community at the moment and people kind of, like, it, it just seems a bit mad to me that people are going after a whole movement because of the uh, because of what one person said. But, I mean, feel free to disagree. <laughs> yeah, no, and I'll, again, I'll preface this with... Uh... I haven't actually done, you know, air quotes, CrossFit or been to a CrossFit box. And since end of 2017, had a little injury and then busy with work. My wife travels a good bit for work or she used to before all this crap went down the last few months. Mm. So, yeah, so I just built a little garage gym and got a buddy that came over, comes over and we do elements of CrossFit, but it's really kind of more in line. Uh, it's probably more, you know, call it circuit training, mm-hmm. uh, but more heavy lifting. You know, but that doesn't mean I, I don't believe in look, CrossFit was great to me and uh, the simplicity of it and the, the impact and it works. Uh, so big fan of CrossFit from uh, all the stuff that's going on in the world. Uh, you know, it's there's some other stuff that came out recently. Uh, I, I don't know if you listen to Andy Stump is cleared hot. Uh, he came out the other day with some stuff about CrossFit and. I kind of like these throw this, this isn't a cop out. Like I, I don't know these people. Mm-hmm. I don't know what they're about. I don't know if they're uh, complete racist assholes or they're the complete opposite. The fact of the matter is uh, I don't know. Uh, what I do know is that uh, back to leadership and we talked earlier about it's your job to adjust mm-hmm. on the battlefield uh, to what the situation on the ground dictates. And Words do matter, uh, whether they're spoken or written, especially when written. And I think that we're just in a, in a time where uh, so many of us uh, felt that we can just do and say whatever the hell we want with no repercussions. Uh, you know, those, those days are probably gone. Oh, yeah, for sure. And in some ways, I think that's a good thing because social media, everybody hides behind a keyboard and think they can say whatever they want. Uh, you know, there's... You, there's a lot of things people say that uh, they would not say to your face because they'd probably end up getting a, you know, a fist to the mouth. Yeah. Uh, well, the same thing now, if you're talking about from a political standpoint or societal changes that are going on, uh, words you say uh, are right can have an impact on your bottom line and your business. So uh, it's your job as the leader uh, to listen uh, and not just be concerned with responding like we talked about earlier. Yeah, dude, I kind of see this one as like, I'd like like the Papa John's one. It's like, if the guy's a fucking dick and he's a racist, get him the fuck off. Get, it, get him out of there. Yeah. But what I always feel concerned with is I'm always like worried about small businesses seem to get fucked every which way in life. So I'm always like, hey, look, let's get rid of the racist dickhead. But like that that small gym in your town that does CrossFit, let's let them keep let, let let them keep doing. They have nothing to do with it, you know. So I'm I'm kind of just like, well, yeah, like get rid of that fucking dickhead. Uh, but let's not go boycotting the local the local box that had nothing to do with it, you know. Yeah, and I just you know, look, I, I'm not trying to dance around the question. Uh, I mean, there there's no place for racism. Uh, there's no place for leaders who want to try to impart or, or lead by fear and impart their thoughts and world beliefs onto others. And I'm not implying that's what he was doing here. I'm just painting with yeah. a broad brush. That said, I think that, uh, and I keep coming back to the listening thing, just with everything going on in the world right now, that everyone, it's just like on the battlefield, man, when shit hits the fan, stop, take a breath, develop a plan, listen, develop a plan and execute. Mm. 
And I kind of think what we need to do that right now. Uh, but everybody, it's it's stop, react. There is no take a breath. Yep. There is no listen, have dialogue, understand where the other person's coming from, and then execute. That whole, you know, steps two, three, and four have all just been skipped. And hopefully that dies down soon. And dude, obviously I'm, I've been guilty of it too. I put my hand up to it. But you know what? In my, in my comments yesterday, on I saw a beautiful exchange yesterday. A couple of people on there who seemed that they were coming at things from different angles, both intelligent people, or well, actually it was three people, but they kept talking and they kept lo- trying to see it from each other's point of view and show each other's point of view. And I was just like, I was just reading these comments. It was probably about 30 altogether, all of them big ass comments. And then at the end of it, everyone was like, well, thanks. I never thought, and I thought, why can't, like, this is how it, this is how to do it. Yeah. You can disagree without being disagreeable. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And that's good. Uh, I want to be my friend. I mentioned earlier, uh, we disagree on things and I love the dialogue that we have to challenge each other. Uh, but that starts and it's effective because we listen to each other. Mate, that's so so good. Do you you have any parting words, mate? Because that is a, that is a, a, a bottom line in itself. Listen to each other. Um, do you have anything else to uh, say to our noble listeners? Um, before we, uh, we say our goodbyes for now. One, buy all your damn books. And then two, uh, hopefully you buy my book as well. But no, man, I just, uh, all kidding aside, man, I just want to, uh, again, I've enjoyed the hell out of getting to know you and talking to you and uh, love what you're doing with the podcast. Uh, and any way I can help you, uh, I am here uh, to do what I can with my small little platform. Uh, I'm going to get you over here to the States one day and make you suffer uh, through a Legion Eight wad with us. I'm 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 in for it, mate. You, you, yeah, you can help me with you can help me drink some beers and um. Well, I was gonna say we're probably back. Actually, I might need a couple before we do because I've I've looked. Um, <laughs> you 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 mentioned what the the wad is in the book and um, for listeners out there, all I'll say is it looks fucking horrific. <laughs> oh, it sucks. Yeah, most people. I'll say this: I kind of have this running thing of like, uh, and I don't do it as much anymore. Uh, but when I do it, I always do round eight with a beer. That's just sort of my thing. Oh but hell yeah! Now I tell people, I'm like, look, man, I've, I've honored the boys enough. I'm good. You know, my job's to go raise money. Uh, but yeah, man, we'll we'll knock it out. Maybe we can take it international and bring it over your way. Wait, I might need a fucking uh, Camelback with um, for the for the entire thing filled with some fucking vodka. Because, um, but uh, yeah. Guys out there, if you're into CrossFit, look it up, Legionate Ward, and, and and get amongst it. Tag tag Jeff. You're a, is it at Jeff Rising? Is it? Yeah, man. The best place to find me on Instagram is uh, at uh, Rise with Jeff. All right. Well, hang around, mate. I'll say goodbye to the listeners. Um, goodbye, listeners. <laughs> and then I'll come back. Heck yeah, let's do this again. I've enjoyed the heck out of it. And big fan of your show. Like I said, I just discovered it a couple of months ago. So appreciate the great work you're doing and would love to get back on, man. Let's talk some more. Right, guys, thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. Thank you so much, Jeff, for coming on. I hope we can do another one in the future. Guys, if you'd like to support the podcast, then please support our sponsors. Go along, follow, follow Altberg, follow Combat Home Over, follow Right Flank, give them all, get behind them, buy their equipment, would really appreciate it. And um, if you'd like to if you'd like to support your old mate Gaz Jones, your old mate Gaz Jones has got a book out. It's called Brothers in Arms. Uh, it's called Brothers in Arms, and it is, uh, it's out now in paperback. Uh, I have signed copies. If you're interested in those, then please just drop me an email on the website, or you can get in touch with me via social media at Veteran State of Mind or at GRJ Books. Please also pick up a copy of Jeff's book, Legion Rising. Um, I highly recommend it. It made me cry, um, honestly. 
Um, and it it just it it was it was a very well done book. So I I really recommend it. Um, you can get the books at Vison Podcast slash um, vsonpodcast.com slash books you can get them on there uh, if you go in the notes now if you're listening on um on itunes or whatever like if you go on the notes on the podcast then there'll be a link you can click on there and jeff's book is uh jeff's book is up there good to go brothers in arms on there too and books from our other guests thank you so much for being along for this wild ride which is veteran state of mind i love you guys catch you next time Cheerio, bye. yeah Listen. Shout out Teaser. You told me not to worry and you wouldn't break my heart. You told me you were sorry and yeah, my whole world fell apart. You said it's not my fault and yeah, I've never done you wrong. I'm grinding to a hope now I can see you're moving on. I promised I'd get better and I told you things would change. You keep me to the gutter, yeah, I'll never be the same. I've gotta let you go now, live your life and spread your wings and yeah, you put on quite a show. I'm and are you sure that you don't want me? Remember all the pain Or maybe you should thank me It's your loss and my gain I'm leaving now forever I won't hang my head in shame But yeah, you've taken me for granted And you should feel ashamed You sold a dream to all of us A dream that we'd all die for A reason for us all to live And something we could fight for I might just help a man up to his feet Or hold a newborn But no matter what I do My hands remembering my rifle, yeah Life's hard, I know that Still wouldn't change shit I wouldn't go back, yeah I wouldn't go back Feelings I hold back Memories fade, yeah, they go fast, yeah, they go fast Good times to come and go, survive the highs and lows Just take it step by step, I guess, yeah, I suppose Good times to come and go, survive the highs and lows Just take it step by step, I guess, yeah, I suppose